I'm enrolling in Medicare soon, and it had me a little confused. Then I found MyHealthPolicy.com. With MyHealthPolicy.com, I could go online and compare Medicare Advantage plans from some top-rated national insurers, including $0 monthly premium plans. I could learn about plans in my area and talk with a licensed insurance agent if needed. MyHealthPolicy.com has made doing my research a whole lot easier. My choice, my Medicare, myhealthpolicy.com. But I'll agree with Joey Styles. He's an Olympic gold medalist. He's smarter than this. Does he actually think that when he comes out here now, these people are not going to chant even louder? Maybe the four- Listen, they're not even waiting for the entrance music. That's a shame. Do I make myself clear? Well, maybe the fans are smarter than this. 
Everybody wants to see the people stupid. Now give me the damn respect I deserve. I'm tired of this crap. I don't want to hear it again. Now, coach, is he serious? Is he saying that if these people said one more time that he sucks, he's not going to be in the main event? I don't want to find out if he's serious. One of the, you want to find out? One of the three eyes is intelligence. Does he really think this is going to work? I hope so, because I'm looking forward to the main event. Let's see if we can guess what happens. Start the music. Come on now, everybody give this man some respect. I think it's going to work this time. Now that's how you get a chant over everyone. And look, I know these days we say you suck the Kurt Angle with love, but it was more fun to do it in jest back in the day. So much fun. And we'll get into that a little bit more detail later on. It was pretty funny how they resolved the you suck chants that night. But anyway, what's up, everyone? Don Tony here. Welcome to episode 45 of This Week in Wrestling History. We covered a period of November 6th through November 12th. And if you are a big fan of clips, audio clips that I have now built into these shows, you got 26 of them this week. Now, I know immediately you're going to be like, holy shit, how the hell are you going to fit that into a three and a half hour episode? We'll do it. We will do it. Now, I must admit, the longest by far clip this week has to do with the ep- the anniversary of the Montreal Screwjob. No, I'm not playing the match. No, I'm not playing the usual interviews that you've heard a thousand times. I've actually gone through a lot of different interviews, clips, reports, and I actually settled on two that I think you will find excellent, excellent. I mean, they're really worth checking out. Some tells me you may not have listened to either in the past. Most of the clips this week range anywhere from like two minutes to eight minutes, but this week's going to be a lot of fun. And they're always fun, but this week I'm going to enjoy. Let's kick it right off. 1975. You know, these days, CM Punk's 434-day reign, very impressive. I will not knock that in any way, shape, or form. You think Nick Bockwinkle and Vern Gagne are looking down and chuckling a little bit whenever they see people talking about 434 days. This week in 1975, Nick Bockwinkle defeated Vern Gagne for the AWA World Heavyweight Championship. Now, Nick Bockwinkle, by defeating Vern Gagne, that ended Vern Gagne's title reign at 2,625 days. Now, I know what some of you are going to say. Well, Vern Gagne, you know, the founder of AWA. Sure, he put the belt on himself. He kept it on himself. Well, Nick Bockwinkle would go on to hold this title for 1,714 days. So the longest reign and the second longest reign had something to do with this week in 75. Pretty damn impressive. Also in 75, Terry Funk defeated Paul Jones to win the NWA United States Heavyweight Championship. This title was originally vacated 
uh, um, because of the October 4th plane crash that involved Ric Flair that we talked about in a previous episode. 1985, I have talked about this on other shows that I do over the years. The Wrestling Classic airs on pay-per-view for the WWF. You know, the big catch, besides it being a tournament to determine, you know, who is the winner, they were giving away a Rolls Royce. You know, they do a contest, randomly give it away. And um, I know it was not a child that won it because I remember we talked about the In Your House where they actually gave away a house. No, an adult actually won the, the Royals Royce. Uh, I don't remember the guy's name. I remember he was from Illinois. But um, I tell you, this tournament is on WWE Network. Never liked it. Never liked it. Because the problem when you have too many wrestlers performing in a tournament, and especially back then when you were on pay-per-view and you had you know, very explicit time constraints to follow, you know, matches end abnormally early. And sure, there's nothing wrong with having a match here and there to end very, very quickly. You know, but when you have match after match after match after match after match ending quickly, it was horrendous. And I'm going to give you just a quick rundown of this to give you an idea if you've never seen this event. For In the first round, Adrian Donis over Corporal Kirshner, four minutes. Dynamite Kid over Nikolai Volkov, nine seconds. Randy Savage over Ivan Putsky, three minutes. Ricky Steamboat over Davey Boy Smith, three minutes. Junkyard Dog over the Iron Sheik, three minutes. Moondog Spot over Terry Funk, he was counted out, 17 seconds. Tito Santana over Don Morocco, four minutes. The longest match of them all, Orndorff over Cowboy Bob Orton, seven minutes, and there was a lot of gaga in that match. So you're thinking, okay, you know, you want to save the more important matches for the long, you know, to take longer later on. Didn't get any better, anyone. The quarterfinals, Dynamite Kid over Adrian Adonis, six minutes. Randy Savage over Ricky Steamboat, four minutes. Junkyard Dog over Moondog Spot, 45 seconds. Tito Santana and Paul Orndorff fought to a double countout. After eight minutes, they fought to a countout. The semifinals, Savage over Dynamite Kid, five minutes. And the finals, Junkyard Dog over Randy Savage, by countout, nine minutes. I mean, you know, that's, to me, I just can't get into that. There was a non-tournament match, Hogan over Piper, which was entertaining. I think we might have played it last year uh, when we were first touring around with This Week in Wrestling History. That match won seven minutes. And there you go. So now we go all the way up to 1993. And um, if anybody on the synopsis is going to be like, hey, where did you get that newspaper article? Got connections, everyone. You're going to see a lot of little newspaper clippings in future episodes of This Week in Wrestling History. I basically hit gold as far as finding news articles from things that happened in wrestling and yesterday. You got to see some of the stuff that I pulled up. You cannot do a Google image search for it. It'll just blow you away. Now, look, you got to understand the clip that I put up on the synopsis is tiny. It's nothing impressive. You got to keep it under a certain size, obviously. But, you know, I'm getting some really cool newspaper articles to share with everyone but getting back to 1993, I'm going to just keep this very short and to the point because the charges were, in fact, dropped. I'm going to just give you an overall synopsis, nothing really explicit. But in my opinion, and I'm sure others have felt this way, 
you know, the situation that happened with Jerry the King Lawler and a 13-year-old girl in 1993 was the reason why this really awesome feud between the USWA and the WWF came to a screeching halt, all right? If you've been following the episodes earlier this year, those Vince McMahon promos, he brought Tatanka in, Randy Savage in, brought in uh, El Gigante in, even Bret Hart. I mean, it was a really cool feud. And this was, to me, the birth of Mr. McMahon. Four years premature. And it came to a screeching halt because of this incident. Now, long story short, this week in 93, Jerry Lawler was indicted on one count of second-degree rape, three counts of second-degree sodomy, one count of harassing a witness, okay? this It was alleged that in the summertime of 1993 on two different occasions, Jerry Lawler was in a hotel room with a 13-year-old and I believe another girl as well. And the 13-year-old had gone to the police and said that, you know, it wasn't forcible, but it wasn't forcible, you know, assault, but they willingly you know, had relations with Jerry Lawler. Jerry Lawler emphatically denied it. Everybody came to the defense of Jerry Lawler. The problem is, is when something like this gets accused, it, a lot of people refuse to let it go. And this was a very serious situation at the time. And the charges were ultimately jo- dropped. Now, I don't want to get into the details of the charges being dropped because that will happen on an upcoming episode of This Week in Wrestling History. All right, the, the, the girl recanted a story. She explained why she said she said it. Not only that, she was a fan of the USWA. She used to sit front row at all of the events. All right, she made up the story. Um, the interesting thing is, is that you know, for people that are going to ask, there was no DNA evidence. There was no proof whatsoever. Now, granted, you got to understand these accusations came in a couple of months after the alleged, uh, you know, events took place. But still, you know, in this era of Me Too, you got to always, I don't want to say always take the side of the woman. Because there are a lot of women out there that are using the Me Too movement to get themselves over and will exaggerate. And it doesn't happen often, but there's so many cases out there where men have been falsely accused. And when you actually read the reports and research everything, it does, in my opinion, lead to the fact that this, the girl made up the story. And she ultimately uh, told the report, like I said, I don't want to go too far ahead, but because of this happening, okay, Vince McMahon decided, now you got to keep in mind, a couple of weeks ago, we covered that Randy Savage won the USWA title uh, feuding with Jerry Lawler on behalf of the WWF. In fact, there was even one interview where Vince McMahon is wearing the title. Might have been because of Tatanka's reign, but the point is, is that they were still feuding. Randy Savage, they were going to bring Bret Hart Bret Hart was actually going to face uh, Jerry Lawler, I believe, this week in 93. Vince McMahon decided no more. Even though charges will be ultimately dropped, the war between USWA and WWF ended. Randy Savage would vacate 
the USWA title in November uh, November 20th of 1993, and the co-promotion between the two was over. Even though the charges were dropped not too far later, Vince never reignited that feud with the USWA and the WWF. So if you think about everything that went down this year that we covered that was so entertaining and seeing this little storyline and who knows what Vince McMahon would have done further as the Mr. McMahon character in USWA in 1993 if these allegations didn't happen. And it's a shame. It really is. Now, um, you know, you can go online and research this case a little bit further but honestly, there's no reason to. I think some people will do that because they just want to generate attention to their websites and generate. I remember reading a, an article a year or two where somebody started pulling like letters and a statement by Jerry Lawler and others and really try, trying to sensationalize this where at the end, the, the girl said she made up the story. And a lot of other people came to the defense of Jerry Lawler and actually you know, uh, cooperated with the girl's story that she made it up. So leave it alone. Why rehash something that ended up being a false accusation? So I wanted to just spend two, three minutes on this because to me, when this was going down in 93 with Vince and the WWF doing USWA stuff, that was fucking cool. It was a lot of fun and it doesn't get as much love as when he went back uh, to 1997 and do a little bit other work but still, what was happening in 93 was very unique. Yes, you had federations showing up in federations many time years before. But as far as WWF, at that time, after you know knocking a lot of promotions out of business and never acknowledging WCW, this was cool. And it sucked that it ended so abruptly. Wrapping up 1993, WCW, Clash of the Champions, and... Right after this, we'll start getting into all of these audio clips. Clash of the Champions 25, St. Petersburg, Florida. Ravishing Rick Rude and Road Warrior Hawk went to a double countout for the International World Heavyweight title. The Shock messed over the Equalizer. Lord Steven Regal over Johnny B. Bad uh, to retain the World TV title. Steve Austin over Flying Brian. Dustin Rhodes and uh, defeated Paul Orndorff to retain the U.S. title. Nasty Boyds over Davey Boy Smith and Sting. And in the main event, Ric Flair over Vader by DQ in a WCW heavyweight title match. 1994, Bushkill, Pennsylvania, Monday Night Raw. Typical edition of Monday Night Raw. Nothing uh, big time noteworthy coming out of it. But halfway through the show, Vince McMahon has the camera on his face and as he's about to do commentary, made this following statement. All right, we're back, ladies and gentlemen. We'll have more action for you momentarily. Uh, at this time, uh, obviously conspicuous by his absence, is the macho man Randy Savage. And I'd like to uh, announce, unfortunately, that Randy Savage has been unable to sign a, a contract with the World Wrestling Federation, not unable to uh, rather come to terms with the World Wrestling Federation for a new contract. But, Randy, I know you're out there listening. And uh, on behalf of all of us here in the World Wrestling Federation, all of your fans... And certainly uh, me, the number one fan, I'd, I'd like to say thank you for all of your positive contributions uh, to the World Wrestling Federation. Thank you, Randy Savage, for, for all of the wonderful memories for so many years here in the World Wrestling Federation. We wish you nothing but the best. Godspeed and good luck. Randy Savage would never appear in a WWE ring. 
ever again. And um, within a month later, he was in WCW. Now, we'll cover that debut when the time comes. We actually do cover a Randy Savage debut this week. Uh, it, obviously, since we're already up to 1994, it doesn't happen in the WWF. And as I said, we're not covering WCWs. So that can only really mean one or two other places. But we'll get into it when the time comes. Wrapping up 1994, one of the greatest pay-per-views in wrestling to ever take place. If you've never seen it, you really should go out of your way to see it. I know online the video quality is really shangata, but it is good enough that you could sit there and really enjoy yourself, especially as American commentary. I really wanted to play some footage of some of the matches here. The audio quality is just not that good. And not only that, some of the matches go so long, and that's a good thing that it's just with the screw job coverage and a few other things that we're getting into, we just couldn't fit it. But this was the event that had talent from AAA, IWC in Puerto Rico, WCW was involved with it. You had Mike Tanay and Chris Cruz doing commentary. Took place in Los Angeles, California. And, um, you know, the event was When Worlds Collide. Now, ECW had an event uh, in May of 94, also called When Worlds Collide. So, you know, when some people say, oh, ECW ripped off the name. No, ECW actually aired theirs first. But still, ECW's was not pay-per-view. But this event in 94 was just absolutely awesome. Let me just give you the match rundown. And if this doesn't convince you to just, you know, when you have some extra time to watch it, you'll love it. I promise you, you will love it. Dark match, you had Super Diablo over Al Snow. Mascarita Sagrada and Octagoncito over Espetrito and Jurito Estrada. Fuerza Guerrera, Madonna's boyfriend. Do you remember who Madonna's boyfriend was? It was none other than Luis Piccoli. And Psychosis over heavy metal Latin lover Ray Mysterio Jr. Pegasus Kid, Chris Benoit. Tito Santana and Two Cold Scorpio over Blue Panther, Jerry Estrada and La Parca. In a mask versus hair match, El Rio Del Santo and Octagon over Eddie Guerrero and the Love Machine. Yes, they got their hair cut. Not bald, but they got it cut. And the main event in a cage match, Pero Guayo over Conan. I'm telling you, watch this card. If you've never seen it, you will enjoy it tremendously. Now we go to 1997, the anniversary of the Montreal Screwjob. Now, I'm not going to get into all the match details. You know it. Everybody knows it. If you don't notice... You know, then either you're just a fan of what I do or you're just a very, very new wrestling fan. But, you know, what is interesting is that I, over the recent years, I see a lot of people reminiscing about it around this time, obviously. And they talk about, oh, the next day on Raw, they brought out the midget Bret Hart. No, that didn't happen for another two weeks. Oh, Vince, the next day, showing a black eye and he does an interview, you screwed Bret. No, that doesn't happen until next week. The night after Survivor Series, Vince McMahon did not appear. The night after Survivor Series, you know, in our current age, what is such an awesome episode of Raw? The night after WrestleMania, right? The night after this Survivor Series, you expected them to go balls out with the controversy and really feed off of it. And it was nothing of the sort. Now, the two noteworthy things coming out of the night after Survivor Series, and we'll get back to Survivor Series in a minute. I'm jumping one day ahead. But, 
you know, everybody that likes the DX music, Are You Ready? That song actually debuted the night after Survivor Series. And also the night after Survivor Series, we started to see the buildup of really the first confrontation between Steve Austin and The Rock. At the time, I think they might have been vying for the Intercontinental title. I don't recall if there was there was a belt on the line. So that was a look into the future. Remember, this is 1997. The Rock and Steve Austin. Steve Austin, obviously, you know, mainly over with the crowd. And WWF ultimately wanted Shawn Michaels versus Steve Austin at WrestleMania. But The Rock started to get momentum as well. To have Austin and The Rock finally start going at it a little bit, that, that was a good thing. But there were so many things that just absolutely bombed the night after Survivor Series. You had a terrible match between Mark Merrow and Ahmed Johnson. You had Mark Merrow pick a fight with Butterbean, who was sitting at ringside. Go back and watch Ken Shamrock's opening promo with DX. Now, remember, this is the night after Survivor Series. DX comes out immediately at the beginning of the broadcast, and they're confronted by Ken Shamrock, who they set up a match between Shamrock and Triple H later on. Shamrock's promo was so bad. I mean, it just really set the stage of what this role was going to be. And there's other things as well, but the one thing that you never, ever, ever see anybody bring up, especially when people get, uh, you know, re, re, I don't even know how to, re, regurgitated with blackface around Halloween. You know, somebody wears blackface these days, everybody gets upset at it, and rightfully so. Then some people will bring up moments in wrestling history where people wore blackface. And the two you always see, Roddy Piper at Mania and DX impersonating the nation. Does anybody ever remember Goldust in Black Dust? Because this night after Survivor Series was the beginning of his transition into the artist formerly known as Goldust. I posted a screenshot of what he looked like that night. It is incredible that even at that time, nobody was throwing massive shade and protest that Goldust was in blackface. Yes, it's, we're in a much different age now, and in no way, shape, or form am I trying to throw shade towards Goldust now. All right, it was a controversial character. It was not meant to inflame anybody black, but still, you go back and you watch this episode the night after Survivor Series. You notice nobody ever promotes it. It was not a good episode. So anyway, let's go 24 hours earlier, Survivor Series. Again, I don't need to go through the whole match, anything transpired after. You know the whole deal. I have gone through, over the years, so many interviews, so many clips, so many you know different opinions on it. Was it a work? Was it a shoot? Was it both? Blah, 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 blah. You have heard me for many, many years accuse a lot of this to be storyline. And I've given you my reasons why I'm not going to get into it now. Now I lean towards it being, you know, legit. But there was just too many conveniences at the time and too many things that just seemed to fall into place as far as, you know, controversy goes. But still, the most controversial moment in wrestling history, I would say. And what I'm going to give you now is two clips. Total length, about 20 minutes long. And... I think these clips are really entertaining. Check out, especially the second one. Now, you got to keep in mind, when 
Bret Hart punched Vince McMahon in the face. He was scared, not scared, but he was concerned that there could be a lawsuit filed because of the assault. So Bret Hart was pretty much mum about that incident. He did do a radio show appearance on um, a, a, a show called Get in the Ring about a week, maybe within a week after the Montreal Screwjob. The interview is not that great, to be honest. The audio quality is not that great. But less than a month later, he appeared on TSN's Off the Record with Michael Landsberg. And I have for you a couple of clips from that interview. That interview took place within a month of the Montreal Screwjob. So Bret Hart explaining a little bit of what was going on. And you got to keep in mind, let's keep it in perspective. At this time, we still don't know officially that Shawn Michaels knew or not. Earl Hepner swore on his kids, you'd never screw Bret Hart. You saw what he did in the match. You know, we never got that official at the time. So at that time, there was so many unknowns. So Bret Hart, you know, basically giving his opinion of what he felt happened. And not only that, at the same time, you could hear him still protecting the business, which you have to, you know, admire. The second clip, which I enjoy tremendously, not just because I'm a fan of Dave Meltzer and Chris Jericho, but Dave Meltzer appeared on Chris Jericho's podcast not that long ago, and this topic of the Montreal Screwjob came up. And they had a conversation, and Dave Meltzer explains why he, he, he believes that it was legit what went down. He also talks about a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that I think some of you may not have been aware of, and it's just really entertaining. I sat there and I actually listened to it twice, just because the first time I heard, I said, okay, this is great to share with everyone. And then I said, you know what? Let me listen to it back. Maybe I should trim it down a little bit. And I listened to the whole thing again. And I'm like, no, I'm not even going to touch it. So here you go. You have Bret Hart on TSN's Off the Record and Dave Meltzer and Chris Jericho talking about the night of the Montreal Screwjob. Enjoy. So a month ago, we do a show with Bret Hart, the hitman, and he talks about likely going to WCW. The story was breaking that weekend. It prompted huge reaction, our highest rated show ever. Then two days later... In Montreal, in the Survivor Series, he is counted out by Vince McMahon, and a brawl ensues afterwards. Unquestionably the most controversial bout in the history of wrestling. Since then, we have received thousands upon thousands of requests to have Bret Hart back on the show. Bret Hart called us and said that he would come on the show and tell his side of the story, and it wasn't until today that legally he felt he was entitled to do so. His first ever national television interview, he will talk about that situation. We're not talking wrestling here. We're talking business. We're talking personalities. We're talking with Bret Hart, the hitman today. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. You ready to tell your story? Yeah, as, as clearly as I can. Vince McMahon has told his side of the story, and part of this will be your response to what Vince had to say. Yeah, that's fine. I look forward to it. And uh, much of what you'll see today will be the opinion of Bret Hart, not the, necessarily the opinion of this show, and also we'll give Vince McMahon a chance to respond at a future date. Okay. Vince McMahon, by the way, has expressed an interest to do exactly that. Let's talk about the Survivor Series in Montreal. You were on the show on the Friday, between the Friday and the Sunday. Tell us the politicking that was going on behind the scenes. Well, um, I had pretty much made my deal with the WCW at that point, but uh, for out of out of my interest, best interest for the WWF, I didn't want to disclose that. Um, what I the problem I was having through the course of the week with uh, Vince McMahon and the WWF was that they seemed very much hell bent on uh, trying to tear my character down uh, on his exit, and. Uh, 
I was in a position, a very good position, to make a stand on that. Like, for example, in my contract, I have, uh, I had what you call 30 days reasonable creative control, which means, which was is a very simple thing that just makes sure that I'm, I'm protected on my way out. And uh, they certainly didn't honor that in my contract, for, for starters. So at that point, between Friday or even before that, leading up to Sunday, uh, had Vince gone to you and say, hey, Brett, we want you to lose. We want you to, if you're leaving, not to go out as champion. Well, I'm, I'm going to be very tactful here, and, and I'm not going to try to take the veil off wrestling because I don't feel that it's fair to, to my fans, and I don't think it's fair to the wrestlers anywhere in any organization. But I will say that uh, I made it very clear to them that uh, on account of the way they positioned me as this Canadian hero with the Canadian flags waving. I, mean, I had just come back from Bahrain, for example, where there was a sea of Canadian flags all the way over in uh, Arabia. And I felt that it was very important to me after 14 years of uh, probably the most dedicated, loyal, hardworking service that you could ever get out of a professional wrestler. I'd given this man everything you could ever ask for, and I made it very, very clear, again, I had reasonable creative control, that my character was not in any way, shape, or form going to be trashed or beaten or humiliated in, in Canada. And uh, what happened from that point on wasn't so much a factor to me, but I made it very clear that I was not prepared to uh, go out on my back in my home country, not on Remembrance Day weekend. And that was where we started to have a lot of problems. Uh, he, he, he was very insistent that, uh, that I should, he, he talks about this time-honored tradition. Um, I, I was very adamant and he was seemed to be we seemed to be butting heads on that issue okay. and uh... so let's get to that night but but, but uh, and we'll look at the tape and you can describe what was happening in the ring in Montreal right now tell, tell me what you're seeing and how this is going you're facing Shawn Michaels there obviously well this is I hate to say it, but this is like right in the middle of the match this is nowhere near I'm not spent or anything I'm, and the referee is is in on this whole conspiracy uh, they put me in my hold to humiliate me as much as possible. If you see me here, I'm reaching around to grab his ankle to reverse it. See, and I have no idea the match is going to end till now. And at this point, I'm, I don't think I've ever been so humiliated or hurt in my whole life. I can't believe that after 14 years of giving this guy everything that I gave him, that he would do that to me. Now, who, who are you looking at there? I'm looking right at Vince. There's only Vince one guy to look at. And, and you just spit at Vince. I spit right in his face. And uh, I just couldn't believe it. I was... Devastated. Now, now, Shawn Michaels, I see him on the bottom of the screen there. He's shaking his head. He's looking at Vince. What's his reaction? I think he's worried that he's going to get killed in about 10 minutes in the dressing room. By you? By me. Uh, this whole thing was a very elaborate conspiracy set up by so, Vince McMahon. So you're saying he's acting there, Shawn Michaels? Yeah, I'm sure he was in on it. Um, I'm sure the whole thing was very carefully plotted out. And, again, when I talked to Vince McMahon in the dressing room on on. Uh, on uh, Sunday, you know, he basically asked me uh, how I felt about the match, and I told him what I, how I felt, and I told him that I would get through today's match with my head up, and that uh, on the following day, and it wasn't a, d a demand, but it was a suggestion that I felt that it would be fair for my fans and everyone that I would step down as champion on the, the Monday Night Raw in Ottawa in front of a Canadian audience where I could at least speak without being bombarded with coins or, you know. And I thought it was, I would love to have gone out in a very classy way and said a lot of nice things about, because I, I had such, I, I loved being in the WWF. So, so you would have, under that scenario, if you had retained the belt, uh, the following night in Montreal, excuse me, in Ottawa, 
um, you would have handed the belt over and I would have down. You, you would have you, you would have stepped down and you wouldn't have gone to WCW as the reigning champion no. in WWF. And and if they'd wanted, I off, offered to wrestle the rest of my you know rest of my days out. And as far as the time honor tradition goes, uh, the tradition would have been honored. The problem that I have about this Vince talking about this time honor tradition stuff, and I don't people can read through the lines, but the fact is it's unfair for him to expect me to honor the same tradition when in fact he's got someone that he, like Shawn Michaels, it's not someone that has the same honor. That's what it's referred to, doing the honors. And it's hard for me to to do the honor for somebody that uh, has no honor. And uh, he's, he's this is the same kid guy that's had three different titles in the last year that instead of uh, doing the honors, he, he passed up the and forfeited the title three different times. So he, 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 Vince McMahon um, lied to me and he cheated me in uh, Montreal and he did it in such a uh, degrading, it was strictly done to humiliate me and to bring my stock down and to tear my character down so that he would mean less in the WCW, which is planning on coming up here to Canada. Well, there's a couple of things, uh, and, and we'll address this when we return. Uh, does he have the right to do that, given the fact that he's the boss and he runs the company? And as I understand, working for a company, my boss calls the shots. And second of all, the question is, who screwed Bret Hart? And Vince McMahon said it was this guy here who screwed himself. Back with more off the record to address that in a moment. Like wrestling or not, it is undisputable that this man sitting beside me, Bret Hart, is one of this country's most popular athletes and certainly right now one of the most recognizable and controversial figures because of his departure from the WWF, the way it ended, and soon to be WCW. We'll talk about your future days in a moment, but the past days are a lot more interesting right now. Let's uh, look once again at the end of your fight with Shawn Michaels and watch the referee, Hebner, and his reaction here. Describe to me what's going on here. Well, this is a guy the night before that has promised me, swore on his kids that he would never be part of anything like this, that this would never happen. And, uh, all of a sudden, he's up. He's up. So he was, he was down. He was in on it. Right. He, so and he now watch, he comes to life out of nowhere. comes to life, and he's, watch him run. He is gone. He, he's out of there as fast as he can. This is not a normal situation. Usually the belt is held up. It's a sort of a, this was totally out of, out of, out of the blue. Right. And, and, and you, but, uh, but you do I, boast about the agility of your athletes, and I saw great agility there on the part of Earl Hebner. Yeah. He got out in a hurry. Donovan Bailey. So you're saying that, that uh, and he was a friend of yours, right? He, he swore to me that I, I, I was very much aware that something like this could happen. And he came to me, I came to him, and we talked, and he swore on his children. He said, I he, swear on my kids' lives that I'd quit my job before double-crossing. And him. told me not to worry about it at all, and I didn't. And that's why... That's the only reason they even got a hold on me, because I knew I didn't need to even worry about it. And if you watch very closely, I'm in the middle of reversing it and getting out. And for, for Vince McMahon, who's, who's probably going to see this, I'd like Vince McMahon to, to swear on his children or a Bible or whatever he prefers that uh, that, that was legitimate. Because uh, I know I, I can swear on my children that I never ever said I quit. I never gave up. I never lost that match. I never lost that title. And uh, I, I can say with all sincerity that I, that I have my integrity still intact, that uh, he lied to me and he cheated me. And he did it in front of all my fans around the world, and he did it to, to my family and to everyone else. Well, there's something you did to him. Um, backstage, after that happens, in the locker room, I mean, obviously it was an enormously tense situation there, given the fact that Hebner got out in a hurry and Michaels was panicked. What happened backstage? Well, I won't go into a lot of the, the details. I don't think it's something anybody's proud of, including Vince McMahon um, or myself. I think all I can say is that um, 
I, I can say you got. I think you got what he had coming. Uh, I can say that uh, for someone that grew up with the business like I have, I've grew up in wrestling and. Uh, I love what I do, and I take great pride in it, and I don't consider it, uh, I consider wrestling an art form, and it's something I've taken so much pride in, and, I, and as far as the honor and the tradition goes, I, I honor all the traditions of wrestling. So I think I can help you out here. I mean, there, there's still potential for a legal situation, so you don't want to discuss it. We can draw the conclusion. Vince McMahon, as you'll see in this clip we're about to play, has got a black eye. You have got a broken hand. Um, there's a potential collision there that we're all thinking about that, that took place. Okay, I want your response to this comment uh, from Vince McMahon regarding you and what happened. I screwed Bret Hart. Bret Hart would definitely tell you I screwed him. I look at it from a different standpoint. I look at it from the standpoint of the referee did not screw Bret Hart. Shawn Michaels certainly did not screw Bret Hart. Nor did Vince McMahon screw Bret Hart. I truly believe that Bret Hart screwed Bret Hart. And he can look in the mirror and know that. I think it's a, a very asinine statement. I don't know how we can actually justify that in any way, shape, or form. Let's talk about the night, about the, about the fateful night in Montreal and kind of who knew, who didn't know, what were the plans that were put into place and, and, and was there meetings the night before and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so, I mean, Vince's thing was almost nobody can know. I mean, as far as, like, Jerry Briscoe knew for sure. I don't know who, I mean, I don't know who else knew, and Sean knew, because Jerry Briscoe, so the night before, they go to, it, 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 <laughs> This is the, 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 the craziness of it. I mean, you can just imagine this. I mean, it's like it's so funny because it's like it's the same business, but you couldn't even imagine any of this stuff going on now. So Jerry, you know, Jerry was an old-time amateur wrestling star, like his brother. So Jerry's in the hotel room with Sean, and he's telling Sean what's going to happen, and he's trying to teach him, like, self-defense moves in one <laughs> night <laughs> because who knows what's going to happen with Brett, right? Yeah. You know, they, so... so He's trying to give him this crash course in blocking wrestling moves, I guess. Right. So that's going on the night before. So Sean knows. As far as who else knew, they had a production meeting, and they told everyone that there would be a DQ finish mm -hmm. and that they would be doing a four-way in Springfield, which was the next pay-per-view. And in that pay-per-view, it would be a four-way with um, Shamrock, Undertaker, Sean, and Brett, where Brett would lose early um, and be a four-way elimination match. Brett would lose early. He'd be out, and then... Whoever Sean ends up with it, Sean beats Undertaker, or Ken, or whatever, whoever yeah. it is, at the end, and Sean wins, and that's where we're going to get to Sean and Steve Austin for WrestleMania. Mm -hmm. So that's what everybody, as far as the, the big wigs, the people who have to know, that's what they all thought going into that day. And then uh, that afternoon, you know, there's... So Vince decided. Another one. But just quickly before that, so Vince decided a few days beforehand that I'm going to have to pull a swerve on this guy to get the title I, off. I, I'm, I'm thinking Wednesday night. Okay, after, gotcha. after all that because well, he was discussing it Wednesday night. Right. Yeah, but he never told like okay, so like like Russo and Cornette and whoever else was in that room, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so he, they were definitely talking about a screw job, but Vince never told him he was actually going to do that. Like they didn't know until it happened. Gotcha. But, so, but they but, were in a discussion where it was talked about. Um, so you're going to say there's something else that crazy happened the day of? So no, no, this is like here's here's another thing about, and this is of course the one where where, where people will look back and go, aha, this is all a work, even though it really wasn't. You know, Brett had the documentary that they'd been filming on him for a couple, right, a year and a half, Wrestling with Shadows. So Wrestling with Shadows, the the plan, because I knew Paul Jay, you know, they would talk to me constantly. He was about a director, the yeah. So right. I'm well aware of all of this. 
So um, by weird coincidence, right? And they had this idea of this documentary. And, and honestly, like, you know, their idea of documentary to me was just like, I, I just didn't buy the premise, their original idea, right? Their original idea was just that um, it was kind of like his storyline in the sense of how wrestling has gone weird where people are cheering the bad guys and the real good guys are getting booed because, you know, Brett was doing the heel bit in the United States, but the baby face in Canada. So it's being produced by a Canadian company, and it's kind of about how, you know, Brett, this great Canadian legend babyface, goes to the United States and he gets booed and they cheer Steve Austin, who's this, you know, who does all these heel things, and how it's the changing of wrestling, which to me it's like, you know, bad guys turning good and being cheered and, and all that goes back to whether when Dusty Rose and Dick the Bruiser and Ray Stevenson, I mean, everyone in the world, right? It's just, it's just part of wrestling. It was nothing new or different other than the fact that he, was, he maintained being a babyface in Canada was different. That was different. But overall, it's like I thought, eh, you know, I wasn't really that thrilled with this idea, this, this doc. So anyway, it's supposed to end at um, SummerSlam where Brett beats um, Undertaker and wins the title. So it ends with Brett finally winning his championship back after this whole year of, you know, chasing it type of a thing. That's sure, that. yeah, that's the idea, yeah. Okay, so Brett goes, you know, like, um, you know, like this Montreal match is huge. You guys need to come here. So they come there, you know, and it's like they're filming. They still have the right to film. Vince, Vince had given them the right to do anything they wanted, film anything, anyone. The only, I think, concession was that Undertaker could not gotcha. appear out of character. But everything else is fair game. Right. You know, now they're losing the wrestling war. They're, so so you're, you're doing stuff when you lose that you would never do when you're winning, which is right. including giving people access like that. And, and, and like now they would give people access, but they would have rights of whatever, right? You know, they would make sure it went their way. So because of that, Brett's wired when he goes in this meeting with Vince, which is the craziest thing because the, the key to the whole story in a lot of ways is, you know, Vince, Vince said, I went to Brett and I asked him to lose and he refused and he wouldn't lose the title. So I had to do what I had to do. And Brett's version was different. And it's going to be, he said, she said, and no one's going to know. The weirdest thing is, is that the frickin' uh, of all the conversations you've ever had with Vince McMahon over finishes, blah, 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 you know, in a private room, right? Have you ever worn a wire? Of course not, right? Yeah. <laughs> who, and who would? That's probably the only time in history right. that somebody actually wore a wire while doing this because he's filming a doc. It's not like he's trying to entrap Vince. <laughs> yeah, it's the documentary that Vince probably knows in the back of his mind but forgot. And, but they're not even, and, and, you know, and Brett, both. They didn't go in there thinking, oh, my God, this is all tape. They were just doing their normal conversation. Yeah. So as it turns out, that conversation, there's no video of it, but there's audio of it. So, they, you know, that's when it was like the key thing, because Brett, it was funny because, like, after the skull goes down, and Brett, Brett's giving me his side, WWF's giving me his side, and the two key points were Brett says that, you know, I was willing to lose, and they say that he was never willing to lose. And in the conversation, essentially the conversation is a weird one because Vince never once asks him to lose. Vince is only discussing, you know, the finish and how to do it, and you work with Pat and, you know, lay it to lay out the match. But he does never ask him to lose. So Brett never says, I'm not going to lose. However, they're discussing a whole bunch of different things in this conversation. You know, one of them is, you know, as far as 
there's so much that week because all over the Canadian media that week it was Brett's going, Brett's going, and Brett would never admit to it because he was still kayfabe, right? And he was still trying to protect the match with Sean, right? And all that. So, so he would never say anything. But everyone knew Brett was leaving. It was already out. I'd already reported it by, um, God, probably Monday or Tuesday, you know, before Montreal. So it was out everywhere in Canada, in the United States, nobody knew because the American media didn't really cover wrestling like that. Brett, you know, Canadian media was much bigger. I mean, it was on TSN and everything. And yeah. Brett's, you know, Brett's leaving, and you know what that means for Montreal. Who knows? And it's one of the reasons the Montreal match got so big was because of that. Mm-hmm. The match was bigger because of it. Anyway, so the the whole thing as far as um, Brett goes, you know, everyone knows. You know, I could call up Eric, and I could tell him, you know, don't make the announcement. And then Vince goes, well, you don't really have to do that. Everyone knows it's it's okay. You know, because I think one of the fears Vince had. You know, the story that Brett was going to go to Nitro the next day, was, which, which was told to the point of it became fact, even though there was absolutely nothing to it, um, because that was the great defense, was he was going to take the title, he was going to go to Montreal in, in, in Memphis, I believe it was, the next day, and we, we, Vince had no choice but to do what he did. Right. So, so that was the story, and, and one of the things on that story that was so fascinating is, like, years later, do you remember when Brett went back to do the DVD with Vince? You know, the, the, the original Bret Hart DVD, when the, there's the first business that they ever did together after Montreal's years and years later, before the Hall of Fame. And they were going to do the hit piece DVD burying Bret like they did with Warrior. And Bret kind of got wind on it, and so Bret was like not wanting the hit piece, so he just goes, I'll, I'll work with you on the DVD, but I get creative control of the DVD. Okay, yeah. And, and they, they agreed to it, and, you know, Vince was as magnanimous as you could be, and, you know, talked to him, and Bret got his, his story out and everything like that. So before the DVD, so there's a woman named Marcy Engelstein. Now, do you know Marcy Engelstein by any chance? She was like Brett's old kind of manager or personal assistant or something. She was Brett's personal assistant. Yeah. So she worked with Brett through, throughout this period. So she went and flew to Stanford, and they all knew her. And she met Shane while they're, this was right before they're going to do the DVD, maybe a couple days before working out the deal or whatever. And, you know, Shane's real nice to her. She's real nice to Shane. And Shane's like, you know, it's really too bad things went down the way they did. You know, it's really unfortunate. We all respected Brett and all that. It's like, but, you know, we did have no choice because Brett was going to go to, um, to, to Nitro the next day. There was just no choice. We had to do what we had to do. Right. And Marcy, who knew me at the time, you know, Marcy called me up and goes, can you believe that Shane, it's like, and she's going like, Shane, that's just not the case. It's like, it, even Shane believes that Brett was going to go to Montreal. Right. So he told his own son that story. So anyway, so that's, that's the depth of that story. So anyway, going back to the conversation, in the conversation, the one thing, you know, Brett does go, everyone knows, you know, there's all this, I would like to go to, the next day they're in Ottawa, I would like to go to Ottawa and just, you know, relinquish the title, which means not losing it in the ring. And, and it's like, I just think everybody knows, I think it's probably the best thing for all. So, I mean, that is the one thing where Vince can say, well, you know, he didn't, he didn't insist on it, he just, this was a suggestion, but it was, you know, it was a way of not losing it in the ring where given the, the, the nature of what that title meant and everything, I think from Vince's standpoint, as, as, I think it really was imperative that Vince, that, that Brett I should, had to lose to somebody on the way out. Yeah, that makes sense, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether, whoever it was or whatever it was. But the whole weird thing is, it's like, if he was not taped and that conversation was not out, I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, the story would probably be that, that, Vince would say Brett refused to lose. Yeah, and, and be here, so, I yeah. had no choice. 
and, 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 and you couldn't say he was wrong because he did have to beat Brett on the way out in theory. Yeah, sure, for sure. So in that room beforehand, you said there's Jerry Briscoe, Sean's in there, Vince's in there. Did Pat know? Because Pat always claimed that he never knew. Yeah, that's the one that I don't know. Because Pat's the one who came up with a sharpshooter spot. So I don't know what Brett thinks today. But I know that when, when it happened, he thought Pat had to know because Pat came up with the Because Pat was the agent on the match. Yeah. But it, seem, it seems like so much of a coincidence to have that in there. And then, you know what I mean? Like, okay, well, that's the spot that we'll use. They just happen to be doing it. It seems very strange that it wouldn't have been kind of like, here's the spot that you have to put in the match. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of hard. You know, I mean, Pat's always denied that he knew. And friends of Pat have always denied to me that he knew. But I also know that Vince wanted it, that it was very important that the boys thought Pat didn't know because then they wouldn't trust Pat. And he thought it was very important that, okay, we can't, you know, they may not trust me, but I got to do what I got to do, but I want them to trust everybody else. You know, especially a guy like Pat who's going to, you know, is involved in everybody's finishes because he's the, the finish guy, right? Sure. So I, I don't know the answer. I mean, it's like, if I look at it logically, the way everything went down, it's very hard for me to believe that that spot just coincidentally got in there, and it was, and it was, it was Pat's suggestion of doing the spot. It's just a very, you know, I mean, is how it, would they know? Blah, blah, is blah, it blah, possible blah. that Vince told Pat to put that spot in the match and say, don't say it came from me? Yeah, don't you think? That, that seems to be more, more apropos. Like, Pat, tell them, come up with this idea, it's from me, but don't tell them it's from me. Because if Pat goes and says, hey, you know, Brett, Vince has this idea, I mean, Brett, you know, in the back of his mind or even in the wildest dreams would never expect that, but Brett's also, you know, as old school as it gets and might be aware of that if, if it wasn't just kind of coincidentally thought from Pat, you know? Yeah, if it just was Pat just saying, like, how about we do this? It's not the worst idea. Sean gets him in a sharpshooter, he makes the ropes, or he reverses. And I guess it was reversed because if you watch the tape, you can see Brett reversing out of it when, when the match ends. Well, and that's, that's something that went through in the late 90s, early 2000s, big time. You can watch all of the big matches from that time frame, and everybody was doing everybody else's finish. Right. I mean, to the point where Vince just went, stop, not anymore. Yeah. You know, because everybody, I think I beat, uh, I think I even won the, um, the, the Undisputed Championship with a stun or a rock bottom on rock. You know what I mean? Like, that's just how things went back in those days. So um, as far as the match goes itself, what's kind of, I mean, we know all this stuff, but just to continue to tell the story. Brett goes in the ring with no idea. Sean goes in the ring. Now, Hebner, obviously, Earl Hebner knows about it, the referee. You know, I've heard different versions. Earl's story always was that he's about to go through the curtain, and they told Dave, his, his twin brother. Yeah. And, and it's just like, Earl, this is what's going to happen. And as soon as you make that call, you run to the back, and your, your bags are packed, and you get in the car with Dave, and you're gone. So no, none of the boys see you, or they don't, you know, it happens so quick, right? Which is what he did, which is funny, because there was a guy who called me, like, you know, the minute the show goes off the air. It's, it's a fan, actually, um, you know, a historian, who called me and just goes, oh, my God, they did the Gorgeous George Don Eagle finish. And I, I have no idea what he's talking about. And I don't even realize at this point that it was a double cross. I just thought, well, that's the weird way to get at it. You know, I, I knew, you know, that's the weird way to change the title, isn't it? You know, mm -hmm. and I'm just thinking, I didn't, I didn't realize it was like a, a double cross until, you know, about 10 minutes later when, when Doug Furness called me up and he's just absolutely furious. Oh, wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just furious. And, 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 and he's just going, you won't believe what happened. And, and, and I actually said, because of the call I had just gotten, oh, I think I know what happened. I think it was, no, you don't know what happened. You don't. And he's going like... And he's just furious because, remember, Brett's son is there. Right. And he goes, 
Brett's son is crying right in front of me, and this he, he, was, he was just so livid that they double. And you know, he was. I don't know how close he was with Brett, but he's, you know, all the guys respected Brett anyway. So he was just like, you know, what a horrible thing to do, and blah 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 blah. And it was like, and it was like that all night. But he was like the first one, and um, you know that. And that's when, like, by the end of the night, you know, there's that talk of like everybody boycotting television the next day, which almost nobody did. I think um, Mick Foley it was the, Mick Foley was the one. He actually did. Mick Foley did refuse to go to television over that, and sat out for a couple of weeks or maybe a week until he realized that like. Everybody else is going on with their life. <laughs> What's my thing at this point? 1998. <laughs> this was an interesting week to be a wrestling fan outside of WWF. In ECW, we had history being made as far as the tag team division goes. The Dudleys defeated Masato Tanaka and Balls Mahoney for the ECW tag titles. I was at that event. I remember it clearly. They now officially at that time broke the record for the most tag title reigns. Public Enemy had four. Dudley's now had five. Um, very, very fun night. I mean, going to ECW in Pennsylvania was nice, but the drive was a little draining, you know, because usually we didn't stay overnight. We would drive back late at night and you get home at like two, three in the morning and you're like, even later, sometimes you're like, oh my God, I can't wait to go to sleep. But the next day, you're like, holy shit, that was awesome last night. But to have ECW come into New York, the Lost Battalion Hall, the Elks Lodge, it was fucking sweet. We'd even sometimes take the trek to go to Westchester as well. But it was a lot of fun at that time. And you know what? ECW was in New York at the time, and New Jack cut a promo. I don't know if necessarily they were in the Bronx. I don't think they were. But New Jack just cut a random promo talking about how he was origin the original gangster. I loved it. I'm going to share it with you now. It runs about six minutes, but it just he just tells it like it is. And keep this in perspective. I don't want to jump ahead too much. But as you're hearing this promo, realize that within a week or two, we have the mass transit incident with that teenager who uh, claimed to be older and a more established wrestler and uh, New Jack uh, basically uh, gave it to him. That's probably the nicest way I could put it. So that happens. We'll cover it in a week or two. But for now, here is a promo that I enjoyed that just ran the promo took place on ECW TV this week in 98. I told the cameraman, I said, you meet me in Harlem. I said, we ain't gonna do this in the studio. I said, we ain't gonna do this in a setting where it's safe. I said, you bring your ass to Harlem, where I feel at home. And he came, scared, but he came. Because this is me, you know what I mean? I've been in ECW for three years, and I put up with a lot of bull but it don't matter, because I have established myself as the original gangster. Not the original prankster. I don't rap about it. I don't sing about it. I don't dance about it. This is what I do. I walk in the ring. I whoop your ass. I whoop your ass and I'll beat you until I can't beat you no more. Jack Victory, look where you at. I told you. I was gonna get you. Now you out. Knee toe up. 
Now I'm going to put y'all in line. I'm going to beat you one at a time till I get tired. Everybody else you put in front of me, same thing. Because I've done it. I paid my price. I've deserved everything I've got. Ain't nobody gave me I've dove off balconies, I've dove off cliffs, I've dove off two and three stories, and you know what? I still got up and I gave you what you wanted because why? I'm New Jack. They said, what happened to Mustafa? They said, who's your next partner? I don't care about no partner because I'm me. I do my thing. I get my done. You know what I'm saying? Because I am the original gangster. You know what I mean? I don't ask nobody for nothing. I don't beg nobody to do nothing for me because I will get mine without help from nobody. They said, New Jack, you've always been a menace. You've always been a problem. You've always gotten trouble in ECW. And they said, why are you see there? I said, come I make money. I put asses in seats. That's why I'm there. You know what I mean? That's why New Jack is where he is. You know what I mean? Because I put asses in seats. And think about me. You know what I mean? They said, why don't you wrestle? I ain't got to wrestle. I get a garbage can, I throw in the ring, and I whoop your ass. That's all they want to see. That's what ECW was brought up on, violence. And that's what I give them, violence. You know what I mean? I go home, my old lady, carry me up the steps, carry me down the steps. I got to eat, she bring me food, I had to piss, she take me to the bathroom. Why? They said, why you put yourself through that? I said, because that's what I get paid for. And I don't feel bad about it. And I don't ask nobody to do nothing for me because I do what the f I want to do. You know what I mean? If you don't like what I do, turn the channel. Watch the fake But this is New Jack. And I'm going to give you what you want. If you me, I'm going to get you. Whether you want to call it a work or a shoot. If you get on me, I'm going to get on you back. If you want to work, we can work. If you want to shoot, I'll beat your ass. I'll whoop your ass. If you think you're going to come to me and beat me up, then cool. You beat me up. But I'll come back at you. And I'll get you the way I know how to get people. I'll beat your ass. Whether I got to sneak you like I've done before, or whether I got to come at you like how you think is a man, whatever, I'll get you. Because I've established myself. I don't care about nobody. Nobody. I don't care about no belt. I don't care about no titles. I don't care about none of that. I just care about me. I carry my own weight. Why is Mustafa gone? Because I was a wheelbarrow. I carried him. I did Cronus a favor. I carried him. I don't need him no more. All right? I'm the original gangster. Don't call me an icon. Don't call me nothing. Just call me New Jack. And for anybody that want to get in the ring with me, come on. Watch what I do to you. I'll beat your ass. I will beat your ass down to the ground. I'll beat you. Ain't no gimmicks here. You want to say the weapons needed? Yeah, I need weapons because I want to take you out. I want to take you out. I need weapons. I want to take your ass out. We carry the belts. Who came in to, 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 to wrestle us? Nobody. Why? Because they knew. Because I ain't no joke. And anybody that's ever gotten in the ring with me, they know I ain't no joke. And that's how I'm gonna always be. When I'm done wrestling, I ain't going nowhere else. I ain't going to WCW, WWF. When I'm done with ECW, I'm done. I quit. I do nothing else. I drive a truck. I drive a cab. 
I do nothing else. Because this is me. This is home. You won't dress me up in no pink panties and no high heel shoes because this is me. Sandman went on. Raven went on. Steven Richards. And a pit bull sold a out. You don't buy me for money. I don't get in trouble to turn state evidence to get probation instead of jail time. I do my time. I've done it before, I do it again. And I don't owe nobody. And you ain't gonna never say I sold out, and it ain't for you, it's for me. For my own personal satisfaction, I ain't selling out to myself. Whatever somebody else think. Put me in the ring with you. You go down. Call it a work. Call it a shoot. You go down. I created all this violence. Professional wrestling. All of it. Wasn't no gangs. Wasn't no nothing. It wasn't none of that until New Jack got put out there like a lab rat and they saw what I did and now you got WCW gangs. WWF gangs. I originated all this bull and I don't get none of you credit but me and whether you want to believe it or not I was the one that started offer me a contract I tell you to kiss my ass cause I don't need none of y'all give me an opponent I'll beat your ass why? cause I am believe that you know no bullshit one of the few WCW shirts that I ever bought from WCW at the time was the original Jericho-holic shirt. The Chris Jericho shirt that just had silhouettes of Jericho in like red and yellow colors. It went across the center of the shirt. I was a huge fan of what Jericho was doing in WCW towards the end of his tenure. When you had Ralphus in his corner and he's calling out Goldberg and uh, calling him Greenberg and 4-0 and wanting to fight Goldberg. And it just felt so organic. It was so much fun. Jericho, the more he tore up signs, the more people were behind him. And it was sadly this week in history that we had the end, it appeared, of the feud between Goldberg and Chris Jericho. You know, if you have not seen it, WWE on the network has the Monday Night Wars anthology, and they do cover Chris Jericho's tenure in the WCW and then the WWE, and um, they do get into this feud with Goldberg quite a bit, and you can see that WCW management just did not think Chris Jericho was anywhere near Goldberg's league. Now, look, Goldberg was a phenomenon at that time. So, no, there was no, not many people that were in his league. But still, it was a feud that would have been fun. And it felt like it was squashed this week in 99. Because after Jericho cut his promo in the middle of the ring with Mean Gene and Ralph is there, as he's walking down the rampway, Goldberg sneaks up behind him and gives him the spears shown around the world. And the feud felt like it was over. What could have been, what should have been. Chris Jericho, you heard the reception of this great crowd here in Uniondale, Long Island. They love you. They are all Jericho-holics, right? Maybe I call that one wrong. 
First of all, Gene Mean, I just want to point out a little bit of Jericho trivia. 28 years ago today, I was born right here in Long Island. And I just want to say, I sure I'm glad I left. This place sucks. Oh, that, that, that might be a little strong. You know, another thing, there might be somebody in this building here tonight that may surprise you, Mr. Jericho. Well, first of all, if you're talking about Greenberg, let me give you a little bit of background. Once again, everybody here knows, although a lot of people don't want to admit it, that the score is Jericho 4, Greenberg 0. That's Goldberg, for the record. Now, there's a lot of controversy. A lot of people don't want to admit the fact that I've broken Goldberg's streak. All the lost souls, the few of them who chant Goldberg, which, by the way, sounds an awful lot like boring. Have you ever noticed that, Gene Mean? I've never noticed that. And the point is this. I asked Greenberg to come out and meet me tonight, but I know for a fact that he is not in the building. Whoa. I Do not count on that, my friend. No, 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 no. Ralph has told me... He's supposed to be here right now. No. Ralph has told me that he's not going to be here. I trust this man with my life. I know he's not going to be here. So once again, doesn't that prove that you, Greenberg, realize that you're not man enough to beat me? You're not man enough to face me. You're not man enough to beat my streak. So once again, Greenberg, I'm waiting for you. I'm right here. I know you got no guts. Thank you very much. Uh -oh. Thank you, Chris Jericho. Making As you can tell, the people here are... Uh, they love you. They're, out, they're waiting with bated breath for my words. So Greenberg, just let me continue by saying, if you had any guts at all, you would come here to face me, to stop me, have a little bit of pride for gosh sakes. He's got pride. He's got no pride. This man has pride. Gene Mean, it boils down to this. Greenberg, you're not mad enough to face me. You're certainly not tough enough. And all the Jerichoholics know you're just too green to beat Jericho. Let's go, Ralphus. Come on. All right. Uh-oh. Uh uh, he's got himself Chris ready. Jericho. Tony, I'm going to turn it back to you. Unbelievable the confidence this man has. Gene, run for your life. I think there's going to be somewhat of an explosion as Goldberg has just arrived to solve this. Here he is, the man. This is the confrontation we've been waiting for. Has the realization hit Jericho yet? Something's going to hit him pretty soon. There's old Potbelly. He's blown by him right there. Seems to me Jericho now has made the list. 
you know, WWF has a really cool encyclopedia with records and stuff like that. I don't know if there really is one that was ever officially done by WCW. Was Judy Bagwell a tag team champion or was she not? Because most record books have it that about a month ago, um, you had Rick Steiner and Buff Bagwell defeat the Giant and Scott Steiner, uh, who is subbing for Scott Hall, who's injured. And Rick Steiner and Buff Bagwell became the tag champs, WCW. Buff Bagwell turned on Rick Steiner during the match. And as a result, WCW allowed Rick Steiner to pick a different partner as his tag team champion. Now, officially in the record books, he chose Kenny Chaos. However, this week on Nitro, we see a confrontation between Scott Steiner and Marcus Bagwell, Buff Bagwell, and Rick Steiner and his tag team champion. Now, it's interesting because the WWE Network does show about three minutes of this footage in like a highlight clip. It's interesting that they edited out like just one sentence where Scott Steiner threatens to beat up Judy Bagwell. Is that overly PC? I mean, you know, it, he didn't really do it. And, but but uh, we get to other matches. You have men be, beating women and vice versa. Judy Bagwell just was terrible. But at this time, did Rick Steiner uh, reveal his tag team champion to be Judy Bagwell? She came out wearing the belt. She cut a fucking promo. They even teased that they were going to fight at World War III, which ended up not happening. I think it was just Rick versus Scott. But still, here's how it went down this week in 1998. Rick Steiner revealing his tag team champion as... Judy Bagwell? Well, the dog-faced gremlin, Rick Steiner, dangled that carrot. Put the world tag team titles at stake. Well, here you we know, go. Judging from the confrontation that they had last month at Halloween Havoc, I think that Rick Steiner just may be the man to keep his brother in line. Seems that way. Now, yeah, who's his partner? He's waving for his partner. Who is that? No. Oh, that's not chaos. No. Are you kidding? Are you kidding me? That's Judge Judy Bagwell with the bell on. Judy Bagwell wearing the world tag team title belt. Right she is. What a nice outfit, too. Obviously, yes. some motels missing a shower curtain. Is she? Is she's really gonna wrestle? Well, we know she can beat her son. And her son knows it, too. Look at it. I want to see just one Hunica run out of her. Oh, oh, fans, I don't know what to think about this. He swung his butt. She ducked the clothesline and leveled him. She paid Rush Buff. And she still got the bell on. Yes, she does. He does. That's all he can do in this situation. This ain't happening. Tell him. Hey, you old bag. I told you to stay out of our business. This ain't happening tonight because there's no referee. 
Marcus, I told her to stay out of our business. Next time, I'm gonna slap you, yo. Hold up, hold up. Huh? Hold up. Wow. Hey, there ain't nothing stopping you. Come on. There's nothing between you and me. Come on. You afraid of your mama? <laughs> I think. <laughs> Let me tell you something, Judy Bagwell. I've already told you, keep your nose out of my business. You know who pays the bills. Hey, I knew you two chickens wouldn't fight tonight. So why don't we make a match to finish this thing once and for all? You want the belts, I want you. Why don't we do it for World War III? Auburn Hills, we can finish the start. We can finish me and you. I'll finish you off once and for all, Scotty. Wait a second, do you mean to tell me, me and Big Papa Pop versus you two? She's not wrestling. She doesn't even have a contract here. Marcus, listen carefully. I've whipped your butt all your life. <laughs> that's fine, that's what you wanted? You got it, Auburn Hills, right we're gonna whip both y'all. Hey, you bring the referee, we'll bring the belts. You got it. Judy Bagwell is going to wrestle against her son. This is a first in the history of professional wrestling. It'll happen on the 22nd of November. And she even fought, too. She'll want her own dressing room. Now, forgive me if she has done this because I really haven't seeked it out to look. And I don't even know if Judy Bagwell's still alive. I think she is. She's got to be because if she would have died over the years, we definitely would have been like, holy shit, you remember that fucking clusterfuck? I'm surprised that Judy Bagwell is not invited to like a plethora of wrestling conventions. Yes, what she did at that time is wrestle crap. It's all wrestle crap. But... I think in this day and age, people would, would look back on it and treat her like a little pop culture icon. I kid you not. Not a tremendous, but it's like, you know, taking a picture with Judy Bagwell, I think people would show that shit off. And forgive me, like I said, I haven't really followed if she's been in any convention. So if someone comes up to me and says, yeah, she went here, she went here, she went here. All right, she did. But I don't hear her name popping up. Maybe she just doesn't want to do it, but... I, I, it'd be a cool thing to see. I actually really mean that. So if you thought that wrestle crap is bad, let's go to 1999. Right, we had a little bit of wrestle crap on behalf of WWE and WCW. Although WWE ended that week on a real high note, and I'll get into that in a moment. Let's first talk about the uh, the interesting in the Shangata. This week in 1999, WCW was doing a world heavyweight title tournament. And if you look it up and check out the brackets, the brackets were very interesting. Some of the names on there were noteworthy. And based on the brackets, it just so happened that we had two people face off in the middle of the ring just for a couple of minutes. It ended in a clusterfuck, which sucked because I really, as this match started, I got really intrigued. I wanted to see them actually, you know, try to brawl it out a little bit. 
So I'm going to share with you, even though it was just a random match and it ended in a clusterfuck within a couple of minutes, but still, in the World Heavyweight Championship tournament, in one of the brackets, we had Chris Benoit versus Medusa. This is going to be quite a match, Brain. Medusa, who continued on in the tournament, is going to face Chris Benoit, the cripplet. Matter of fact, let's go back a week ago and show you how Medusa went on in the tournament. I was pretty apparent that Evan Courageous was more, I guess, smitten by Medusa than he was wanting to wrestle a match. Medusa took advantage of it. Don't they usually? I guess they usually do. But one's got to wonder what she's going to be able to do against side of the spectrum as we roll the video tape. Here's a spectacular move, Brain, that Benoit used in the cage to advance onto this round of the tournament against Dean Malenko. Look at that. Look at how far he dives. Look at that move. Oh. It was breathtaking. You know, if he does that to Medusa, he'll bounce right back up in the air. Uh, but then, of course, he was laid waste to by members of the revolution when Saturn, Malenko, Asia, the ropes. Finally, David Flair came out later to unlock him, and we know already, and so does Kimberly, that David Flair's in the building somewhere. Oh, yes. But the bell sounds time for this tournament match, and Medusa, how about that reversal into a hammerlock? I mean, the powers that be keep putting her in these situations. I think they want to get her hurt. I think maybe, I don't know They're if that's... teaching her a lesson, maybe. I don't know if that's it or not, but maybe she, you know, you only get what you deserve a lot of times. Here in, in, uh, on Nitro. Well, I deserve a lot more in heaven, Gavin. <laughs> you probably wouldn't say something like that. I think, oh, look at the standing six. We're going to see it into a full Nelson, into a hammerlock, and push her out. I don't think this is going to be like an Evan Courageous here tonight. Benoit turned away, and Medusa, with a karate judo background, is making full use of that right now. Benoit sitting her head. Up. Medusa. Ahura Conrana. He, he put him down. He ducked an inside crescent kick. And now Benoit. Back to the attack. Let's go. Once again. Half the Benoit chop. Medusa was 25. Hands, as we said, Sting and Goldberg. Top of the hour. Come out and now he and Johnny Boone are at each other's throat here. See, Evan is uh, yeah, he's emotionally tied to this girl. And Johnny Boone who's wrestling, who's had some wrestling matches of his own, and Johnny Boone is fighting Evan Courageous. And the referees have come out. Well, we've seen just about everything. We got over two Hold on, who's Jeff Jarrett's come in. And he confronts Ben Ross. And now Johnny Boone is calling for the bell. Medusa is still down. Now Medusa's going to be disqualified because of outside interference. Do you think that maybe the, the fair-haired child is out on... Oh, he's got the microphone. Hey, Medusa. Like I said before, this is not the WWF. And we do not hit women here. 
Run for your life, Jared. Let me spell it out to you. I just screwed you out of the tournament. Now we get to the wrestle crap. I don't know what WCW was trying to do at the time. Now, we've heard over the years that after Dustin Rhodes was doing the seven promos, that it felt too creepy that he was, you know, pretending to possibly be a child molester or something like that. I just thought it was the boogeyman, you know, just trying to scare little children. And you know what? Some simple character development and some interviews and promos could have immediately eliminated that speculation. Because remember, it's speculation. Seven was outside a fucking window. He wasn't touching a child's shoulder or anything. like. He was, he was a spirit, so to speak. So why you had people really, you know, angry, thinking that, you know, he could be interpreted as a child must. Now, remember, this is around the time that they quietly stripped Lenny Lane, did a phantom title change and took the Cruiserweight title off of Lenny Lane because the powers that be in Turner uh, were not happy with uh, the homosexual gimmick. Yes, times have changed, but still. The seven promo was interesting. His entrance, yes, he was on cables, obviously, but it was fucking cool. So we see all these vignettes for all these weeks of seven coming to WCW. And he finally debuts, has a tremendous entrance into the ring, white paint all over his face, little bit dressed sort of The Undertaker, and he cuts this promo. You're supposed to go to break. What is that? Like this. 
All of you don't know I was gold dust, and gold dust sucked. Gold dust nearly ruined my wrestling career. You see, I wanted to come back to WCW because this is home for me, and I wanted to be just me, just me, because that's what I can do, just be me. But the powers that be came to me and they said, Dustin, you know, Dustin sucks. Dustin is boring. So I here now I stand before you and, oh, my new name is Seven, by the way, so. They've dressed me up like Uncle Fester to play trick or treat all year long. How is it brief? What you can do is take gold dust and shove it up your ass. You can take this silly looking thing seven and shove it up your ass. And you both can kiss my ass. Now last week, my father called me Dusty Rose. And it seems that he's no longer with this company. After 25 years of building everything that you see right here and right now, they kicked him to the curb like he was a piece of shit. to be that doesn't cut the mustard and now you got to deal with me because you disrespected my father you disrespected the road's name and you disrespected me for the last damn time you understand so from this moment on tonight and to the end of your lives I am gonna make your life a miserable hell I'm gonna make WCW a miserable hell and TNT too so boys I know you're back there staring, your little fat faces in the monitor looking at me. You know one thing. Tonight and forevermore, you will never, ever forget the name of Dustin Rhodes. So Seven, he debuteth and he fucking endeth. It, the, the gimmick was done. That's it. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Do you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me, in a way, of Emelina. Remember all those weeks, the uh, the coming of Emelina, the recreation of Emelina, the rebirth of Emelina, and we're hyped, 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 hyped. And then she came out, and she said, and now you will see the transition back to Emma. And she walked off. Now, Sevens was obviously more of a attempt to be a controversial shoot towards WWE and WCW creative and trying to be very realistic and it backfired obviously but doesn't it remind you a little bit of all the build-up Tamalina to get nothing but it is what it is so now we go over to Smackdown there was clusterfuck but there was it did end it on a very positive note it was this week in history that we had the funeral of the big show's father now there's a couple of segments that are involved with the funeral because they went back to the camera a few times but the very end 
of the big show laying on the coffin and big boss man riding away. It's just one of the funniest fucking things that I ever seen in wrestling. It was not intended to be funny, but I remember doing my hotline at the time and just would break out in laughter, just thinking about it. It it was creepy, fucked up, but it was just wrestle crap, but it was so goddamn funny. Oh my God. I The buildup to it was was funny. You know, and there was some people at the time that really thought the Big Show's father had died and it was a real funeral. I mean, that, that, and you know what? I got to give a little love to the Blues Brothers, 1982, because I remember bringing it up at the time and I remember others bringing it up at the time, but you don't ever hear anybody or bring it up anymore whenever they rehash the storyline. When Big Boss Man was in that, I don't know if it was a Plymouth or he was in the, 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 like the, it looked like a police car with the loudspeaker on the top. And he's bad mouthing the family of Paul White, the big show's father. Um, that looked like the exact car from the Blues Brothers. Remember when they were, you know, they were trying to get all the people to go to their concert, you know, bring your father, bring your kids, bring your grandfather, bring your dog. That's what it, look at the vehicles back to back. I, it just, said that a lot of people don't pick that up here's a little snippet from that storyline at the time obviously when big show big show is on the casket boss man is riding away you really can't hear much of anything other than engine noise so i cut all that out but i think i got enough where you will be mildly entertained with the deepest regrets and tears that are soaked I'm sorry to hear your dad finally croaked. He lived a full life on his own terms. Soon he'll be buried and eaten by worms. But if I could have a son as stupid as you, I'd have wished for cancer so I would die too. So be brave and be strong. Get your life on track. Cause the old bastard's dead and he ain't never coming back. I am not believing what we're hearing here. That's exactly how I feel about the Big Show's daddy being dead. Well, Michael, as as I said, he stooped to a new low Monday night on Raw, but today at the Big Show's father's funeral, unbelievable. This is that heinous, that deplorable, exceptional footage that we warned you about earlier on. This is the funeral of the Big Show's father from earlier today. Dad. I love you. You're a good man. And everything I have in life, I've learned from you. Now, what in the hell is that?
Daddy always wanted to be a drag, drag queen, big show. I'm gonna make him a drag queen right here, right now. What a lot of people may not realize, that the same night of this going down, we also had Arnold Schwarzenegger as the, I guess you call it the guest host of SmackDown. And he ended up doing commentary for the main event, which was a Survivor Series type match. Shane McMahon, Test, Kane and The Rock versus DX, Triple H, X-Pac, Billy Gunn and The Road Dog. And this obviously would segue into Survivor Series for 99, which I think takes place next week uh, in history. And this is the same night where Arnold did the infamous bitch slap heard around the world to Triple H. But just to give you a little idea, because I know a lot of the guest hosts that we've seen over the years have really fallen flat amongst the WWE Universe, but Arnold was fucking over that night way before the bitch slap there's some funny skits on smackdown that night there's one point where dx is in the back and they think that schwarzenegger is going to go through a particular door and as soon as the door opens up they think they got schwarzenegger and they're beating the fuck out of it and it ends up being some random like you know tech guy so they had some funny moments during the night the bitch slap was awesome and i know you've seen it probably a hundred times but here is just the intro where Vince McMahon brought Arnold out that night. Because I thought it was cool because not only did the fans eat it up, and I thought it was great, but you could feel the legitimacy of Arnold enjoying the moment. Ladies and gentlemen, you've seen my next guest battle barbarians. You've seen him destroy Terminators. Oh. Annihilate Predators. You've even seen Jamie Lee Curtis do a striptease dance at True Lies in front of him. Oh, that was my favorite. But you ain't seen nothing yet, as the expression goes, until November 24, when you see, ladies and gentlemen, Arnold Schwarzenegger's newest film, End of Days. Believe me, Satan has met his match. Gonna be a blockbuster. So if you would, give a rousing WWF welcome to the greatest single box office attraction in the world today, ladies and gentlemen, Arnold Schwarzenegger! All right. They are on their feet in Baltimore! Arnold Schwarzenegger has invaded SmackDown! Conan the Barbarian! Mr. Freeze has got the hit and Robin! The Terminator! Okay, what in the world are they up to? Can I get an autograph over here? What an ovation for Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm here to pump you up. <laughs> Arnold, in recognition of your status, as the undisputed heavyweight box office champion of the world, it is my pleasure on behalf of WWF fans all over the world to present to you this World Wrestling Federation Championship belt. Wow, what an honor! He's a world box office champion! 
this great honor, for this great honor of receiving this belt. It is absolutely extraordinary. I want to thank all of the fans here for this unbelievable reception. It is fantastic. It's extraordinary to get this kind of a welcome. And then to receive a belt like this, an award like this, for my movie End of Days. Listen to this. It is unbelievable. This week in 2000, Molly Holly makes her WWE debut. Took place in Houston, Texas. And, you know, it's nice to see Molly Holly still getting a lot of love from fans out there. One of the women in WWE yesteryear that I think doesn't get enough credit for how good of ability she had. I had the privilege of working one indie show with her in 2010, I believe. It was for VPW Wrestling. It was right around that time. She was a sweetheart. She was so freaking nice. I think it was the night that I, was it the night that I did Deli Man and smashed Vinny DeGuido with the Italian bread? And I wanted to do the mandible claw with the gizzards, man. That fucking pussy ran away. I offered him 50 bucks to take the mandible claw with the gizzards. I whipped out the gizzards and he ran out of the ring. And I'm saying to myself, you fucking stupid motherfucker, you son of a bitch. Vinny DeGuido now is good people. He's actually uh, looked out for me here and there over recent years, believe it or not. I've talked about it on the show, other shows. I'm not bringing it up now. This is about a history show. This is not about, you know, yours truly doing indie stuff. But it was cool to see Molly Holly make her WWE debut this week in 2000. We had last seen her as part of Miss Team Madness in WCW. She was Miss Madness at the time. And uh, she did well as a member of the Hollies. 2002. At this time, XPW has invaded the Northeast. I worked for them at the time, so I saw it up close and personal. Ring of Honor, CZW, some internet geeks, they were doing everything possible to get XPW out of Philly. And, you know, they would do it with politics, and they would try to really force the State Athletic Commission to weigh down some, like, strong rules on XPW and shit like that. Just fucked up some of the bullshit that was done. I'll never forget that asshole Bob McGee writing up a pamphlet and sending it to people all across the neighborhood that porn was coming to your neighborhood. Just like hyped it up as, you know, the people behind XBW as fucking criminals and, you know, mafia people. And they brought up other crazy shit. Just real assholes. You know, you want to dominate an area, put on phenomenal shows. And believe it or not, you got to give them credit. This week in 02, Ring of Honor put on a fucking awesome show. And if you have the opportunity to get this on video, you should pick it up. Because I'm going to read you the results. And this is a card that I don't think gets enough love amongst people on uh, out there. Because I don't hear this event brought up that much ever. It was the All-Star Extravaganza. Took place at the Murphy Rec Center in Philly. 
2002. The SATs over the hit squad, Mafia Monster Mac, Divine Storm, which was Chris Divine and Quiet Storm, and Special K, Dixie and Joey Matthews in a tag, tag team scramble match. Brian Danielson over the Amazing Red, CM Punk, Michael Shane, and Paul London in a gauntlet match. The Prophecy, Christopher Daniels, Donovan Morgan, and Samoa Joe over Low-Key, Doug Williams, and Homicide to retain the tag titles. Alexis Lurie, who you now know as Mickey James, over Alice in Danger. The Carnage Crew, A.C. Loke and Tony DeVito over the Ring Crew Express of Dunn, Marcos, and a Ring Crew at a Bunkhouse Brawl. Xavier over Jay Briscoe to, ring, to retain the Ring of Honor Championship. A.J. Styles over Brian Danielson to win the number one contenders trophy. And the main event, Shinjiro Otani and Masato Tanaka over Loki and Steve Carino. Very solid card. I mean, you look at it up and down the card. Was there really a bad match? I don't think so. 2003, Lex Luger. He wrestles for the first time since he was arrested in May, possession of steroids, since we had the untimely death of Miss Elizabeth. He actually wrestled for NWA TNA. AJ Styles and Sting teamed up to defeat Lex Luger and Jeff Jarrett. And this would be Lex Luger's final match with any major wrestling promotion. He would appear on various indie shows for the next couple of years. Not much, though. And he officially retired in 2007. So if you really want to see Lex Luger's last high-profile appearance, albeit NWA TNA at the time was not that huge, go check it out. Now we got two audio clips to share from 2003. Both took place on SmackDown. One of them was funny shit. John Cena berating Rey Mysterio. The other one is Vince McMahon hyping up his upcoming Buried Alive match against The Undertaker. First, let's talk about Cena and Mysterio. They were having their match on SmackDown. John Cena would defeat Rey Mysterio in that match. But before the match, John Cena, you know, with his insults and his rhymes, cut this promo on Rey Mysterio. The chances of John Cena losing to Rey Mysterio. That's like Big Show at a buffet ordering one Cheerio. <laughs> I'm a box office smash. I'm reloaded like the Matrix. How am I going to lose to a midget dominatrix? Dude. Hey. You can say you're a grown man. I just don't believe you. You're a baby. I don't know whether to spank you or breastfeed you. Yo, forget the 619. 911 is your slogan. I'm about to put a whipping on the Mexican Gary Coleman. What you talking about, Willis? No, 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 no. Yo, 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 yo. For real, though? The mask is kind of cute, and the entrance is crazy slick. But we don't see eye to eye, Ray, because your head's at my... Funny shit. Ray Mysterio having the goofy, shocked look on his face was pretty priceless as well. If you follow me on Twitter, I posted a screenshot of it not too long ago, at Don Tony D. Then we go to Vince McMahon's promo. 
hyping up his match at Survivor Series, a buried alive match against The Undertaker. And I think this promo is very underrated. Have you ever heard anybody bringing this back to enjoy? I thought it was fucking phenomenal. Now, you just got to picture this. Close your eyes, picture this. Middle of the ring, everything is dark, and it's just a spotlight on Vince McMahon. He's got, at one point, he's on one knee, he's looking down, he's looking up, he's got this evil look on his face, and I posted a screenshot in today's synopsis of Vince McMahon from that night. I thought this promo was awesome. So if you've never heard it, or maybe you don't remember it, here you go, Vince cutting a promo on The Undertaker. I come before you tonight to ask you not to be afraid of me. I come before you tonight to ask you not to be afraid of what I'm about to do or what I'm about to say. I ask you as well not to snicker nor be scornful of my genuine sincerity. We all know that this Buried Alive match at Survivor Series hangs over my head like the Sword of Damocles. And as such tonight, I've come before you. I've come before you to ask you your, well, for your understanding. I've come before you tonight to ask you, as difficult as this is for me, to ask you for forgiveness. And as such, I'd like to have every head bowed, every eye closed here in this arena, no matter where you are all over the world. As I, Mr. McMahon, offer you my personal invocation. I know that the day of reckoning is coming at Survivor Series, so therefore I, I ask for, tonight I ask for my soul to be cleansed. I ask for my heart to be purged. I ask that tonight I, I have the ability to pierce the veil of righteousness. En route to maximum absolution. For I know that in order to achieve maximum absolution, I must follow the light. I must follow the beacon of, of light, the beacon of purity. Follow it all the way to ultimate victory. Yes, I to follow it to ultimate victory, which is why, which is why I, yes, ask for your understanding and forgiveness, but I ask not 
for your understanding and forgiveness for what I've done in the past. I only ask for your understanding and forgiveness for what I'm about to do. For you see, I've been chosen. Yes, I've been chosen. I've been chosen by a higher authority, a greater power. I've been chosen. I've been chosen. I've been chosen to take this glorious quest. I've been chosen to take the final ride. I've been chosen to vanquish my foes. I've been chosen to slaughter the infidel. Yes, by God, I've been chosen to bury the Undertaker alive. Amen. And Two thousand and four, TNA monthly pay per views. They started this week. Victory Road, Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida. Now I re- reiterate, monthly pay per view, not weekly pay per view. The event was called Victory Road, and it was a pretty decent card. And it is remembered for probably one thing more than anything else. Let me get into the results very quickly. Hector Garza won a twenty man X division gauntlet match. Other participants, Jason Cross, D-Ray 3000, Chris Saban, Alex Shelley, Jarrell Clark, Kazarian, L.A. Park, Matt Seidel, Michael Shane, Mickey, Mickey Bats, Miyamoto, Nozawa, Psychosis, Puma, Sharkboy, Sunjay Dutt, Spanky, The Amazing Red, and Sonny Siaki. Eric Watts, Johnny B. Bad, Pat Kenny, and Ron Killings over Dallas, Kid Cass, and the Naturals. Mascarita Sagrada over Pieratita Morgan in a midget match. Three live crew, BG James and Conan over Team Canada to win the NWA Tag Titles. Trinity over Jacqueline, Monty Brown over Abyss and Raven in a Monsters Balls match. Petey Williams over AJ Styles to retain the X Division title. America's Most Wanted over Triple X, Christopher Daniels and Neil Skipper in an elimination last team standing match. Match could only be won when both members, whether separately or together, could not answer the 10 count. Little confusing, but they made the best of it. And in the main event, Jeff Jarrett over Jeff Hardy in a ladder match to retain the NWA World Heavyweight title. What people remember is not necessarily what happened during this match, but what happened after the match. Oh, no. Here's the stroke for Garza by Jarrett. Here's the edge. Look out. Holmes got Sharkboy up and dropped him out of the edge. And Sanjay on the receiving end of the Jeff like powerbomb. Wait a minute. 
They're pointing back towards the entrance. At the time, it was really cool to see Macho Man. You know, some people were wondering how much they paid to get him in to TNA. It was only three and a half years since WCW had gone out of business. So it wasn't that he was extremely old, but he was having a lot of problems with his knees. People in his inner circle have talked about it, you know, years later, even at that time a little bit. But we still thought that it would be fun to see Macho Man in TNA. And um, he was going to team up. Uh, I believe it was, um, man, Turning Point Pay-Per-View. Jeff Hardy and AJ Styles with Macho Man over the Kings of Wrestling. Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, and Jeff Jarrett. It was so sad because Macho Man, if I recall, and, you know, we'll bring it up when it comes time more. Uh, I don't even think he started the match. I think he was in the back up until, like, the last minute or two. He's throwing punches, and he's it's slower. You see the wrestlers, like, almost standing there waiting for it. And he was only in the ring for about a minute and got the win. And, you know, he he was supposed to actually wrestle Jeff Jarrett for the heavyweight title and defeat Jarrett. Never took place. So there you go. Jeff Jarrett uh, defeats Jeff Hardy. And then we see the debut of Macho Man, TNA. 2005, Joey Styles returns to play-by-play, lead announcer for Monday Night Raw. He took the place of JR, who was quote-unquote fired by the McMahons. We covered that not too long ago. In all seriousness, JR was out having colon surgery, and while he was recovering, Joey Styles was in the play-by-play booth. Um, he would stay there until May of 2006. This was the same night that I opened up the show with, with Kurt Angle refusing to come out and perform because the crowd won't stop chanting, you suck. But that was done by design to get the crowd to chant even more, you suck. And it stuck ever since. Now, I'm not going to repeat the opening intro because you already heard that, but it was interesting to think of... Now, you got to think about this logic for a minute because at the time, I remember people didn't comprehend it, and I don't even think we did, to be honest with you. I look back on it now, maybe with a little bit more intelligence, but Kurt Angle just did not want the crowd to chant, you suck. He was pissed off, didn't want to hear it. Now, just keep in mind, pretend you're Kurt Angle coming out for a match and the crowd live is chanting, you suck. You want to try to stop it. So Eric Bischoff, who was playing uh, Raw GM that night, 
Um, he's has a discussion with Kurt Angle and Eric Bischoff promises to make everything right for Kurt Angle. So how does Eric Bischoff appease Kurt Angle so the fans don't chant you suck? They did this. Explain to me how the live crowd would hear that. If they would have beeped, I don't, look, I, I could be wrong. I don't recall anybody saying that you heard the beeps over the loudspeakers at Raw. Uh, that sounded like it came just through the television. Now, if they did that at the live crowd, where the live crowd heard the loud beep as well, then that's funny shit. I'm not sure if that was the case. But I thought about it after. I'm like, okay, this this doesn't make sense because Kurt Angle would still hear the you suck chance. Who knows? But still, very, very entertaining stuff at the time. Now, sadly, we have something else to bring up. And obviously, next week, we will have to talk about it as well. We are coming up to the anniversary of the tragic death of Eddie Guerrero. It was this week in 2005 that... Eddie Guerrero wrestled his last ever match. It took place on SmackDown. He faced Mr. Kennedy, and he won. And, um, you know, the the match was supposed to be for the final spot on Team SmackDown to take on Team Raw at Survivor Series. So Eddie Guerrero, with this win, albeit by DQ, was now on Team SmackDown for Survivor Series. A couple of days later... We would learn that he had passed away. Little sad trivia note that some people may not be aware of. Umaga, who tragically died as well. The last opponent he ever had in a match also was Mr. Kennedy. So, you know, you just think to yourself, look, Mr. Kennedy had nothing to do with either of their passings. But how much does that suck to be the last person in the ring with both? And to be honest with you, it might even be an, you know, like a pleasant memory for Mr. Kennedy. Like, hey. I got to wrestle their last match. So you can look on it on both sides of the coin. Match was short. Eddie doing his lying, cheating, and stealing, as always. Here is the uh, flashback. 2005, Eddie wrestling his last ever match. 
against Mr. Kennedy. Very pro Eddie Guerrero crowd here tonight. Eddie Guerrero has dropped toehold as he pulled Kennedy in. Yeah, great fine hook those legs up. You gotta watch here. Got to, go, got to go for a choke or something. See, Kennedy Lewis in a tough position. Got to get to those ropes. Very smart ring presence by Ken Kennedy. Ken Kennedy says a lot of better instincts in the ring. We've talked about that over the, the past well, couple of months. I believe that Ken Kennedy shows a lot of poise in the ring. And, and, you know, during a matchup with a former WWE champion, Eddie Guerrero, and it looks like Ken Kennedy's not sweating. I'm impressed with that. You know, I would like to have either one of these guys on the SmackDown team of Survivor Series. That's for sure. Well, no doubt about it. Hammerlock now by Guerrero. Get Kennedy off me. Get him off me! Get him off me! It would be interesting, though, to see Eddie Guerrero on the SmackDown team, especially with the history between Ray and Eddie, and now the friendship between Batista and, and Eddie. You know what I mean? It's a lot, a lot of uh, interesting deals there. And again, we have the wild card thrown in the mix now with Lassie. He's been so impressive. Listen to me. Great SmackDown fans here at the Conseco Fieldhouse in Indianapolis. Back in Eddie Guerrero from the get-go. Now Kennedy wants to, <laughs> wants to shake hands. Oldest trick in the book. Against a guy who's been around the block. Oh, there we go. This is what Kennedy's all about. He didn't show anybody any respect in the ring. He never does. You know what? Guerrero probably likes that. Look at Eddie. He's smiling. Don't be fooled. That temp is boiling, I'm telling you. Yeah, that's why they call him Latino Heat. Eddie can unload and even just might. He wants to do a tip. Oh, and a fuck in the eye. Classic Eddie Guerrero. Ken Kennedy bounced off the top turbo. And all that stuff did, like you said, Taz, was fire up Eddie Guerrero. Well, the top blew off, and here comes Latino Heat. He's hot now. Ken Kennedy going to ruin the day. He embarrassed Eddie. Nice uppercut by Guerrero, the former <laughs> WWE champion. You know, that was infuriated Eddie Guerrero. Yeah. Yeah. now choking yeah. And see how Eddie blocks the view of the referee, Charles Robinson. Can't see Eddie using the rope. This is vintage Eddie Guerrero. Well, lie, cheat, and steal. That's Eddie Guerrero's M.O. Always has been, always will be. Batista, the world heavyweight champion, is a... Oh, look at Ken Kennedy. Great move by Kennedy. Yeah. Great leverage move by Ken Kennedy. And this is where Kennedy becomes vicious on the attack. And he has the upper hand. Very relentless. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He shows poise. He's got a vicious streak in him. Don't leave too much room between Kennedy and a Guerrero there. Even a temple. Eddie could be out. Eddie could be out cold. That was a knee to the temple, I believe. It was his foot cold. Not the same as a knee, but it's not the same body. Ken Kennedy pulling Eddie down off the kick out at two. Guerrero. I don't know, I worked with you, I could use everything. Gotcha. Now we have a lock down by Kennedy on Eddie Guerrero. Breaking down, breaking down Eddie there by putting the foot in the back of the knee. Careful, Eddie, you know, Eddie can speed out of this and reverse this, pick an ankle or something. And he's trying to build off the, the Eddie chance. Back to his feet, elbows to the, to the skull of Kennedy. Watch out, watch out, look at it! by Eddie Guerrero. And now Guerrero's in control. Just like that, too. How quick did Eddie turn the tables on Kennedy? Big clothesline and another one to Kennedy. Eddie Guerrero's starting to feel it here. Kick to the midsection. Eddie Guerrero! Wow. Going for the three amigos. The vertical suplexes here. We got one, there's two. Can he get the third one? Eddie 
twist in the hips. And Ken Kennedy countered. Nice counter. Eddie into the corner. Nobody home as the elbow connects for Eddie Guerrero. Tito Heat playing possum. Who's going to end up on a SmackDown Survivor Series team? Joining Batista, Ray, and Lashley. We'll find out here in this qualifying matchup. Inadvertently. Oh, there's that grin of Eddie. But yeah. that was the grin of Eddie Guerrero, which means he's up to no good. Oh, this is where Eddie Guerrero does his magic. I mean, accidentally, the referee got squished. And now, wait a Oh, Eddie Guerrero. Eddie Guerrero with steel chair in hand. The referee's been knocked down. Guerrero's got that big grin on his face. And uh, Kennedy's about to eat the chair. Oh, oh, Eddie, Eddie realizing the referee's coming. Coming to here. What the hell? And he has tossed the evidence to, to Kennedy. This is classic Eddie. Oh, my God. Kennedy caught red-handed. Oh, my God. Kennedy caught red-handed. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. The winner of this match oh. as a result of a disqualification, Eddie Guerrero. He's vintage Eddie Guerrero. Lying and cheating and stealing. Joining Lashley, Mysterio, and Batista on the Survivor Series team to be Raw at Survivor Series. Well, Mr. Kennedy just found out that Latino Heat is an evil genius. Oh my God, Guerrero. <laughs> and, he, and he advances, Guerrero advances to the Survivor Series team on the SmackDown side of things with Batista, Rey Mysterio, and Lashley. Looking good, Cole, looking good. Uh, Ken Kennedy. Oh, and a steel chair off the skull of Eddie. Oh, my God. Wow. Talk about a sore loser. Well, Kennedy knows that this was a great opportunity, and Guerrero just ripped him off of it. Well, no reason to smash a guy's skull open with a chair. I mean, uh, uh, Ken Kennedy was out Fox. Not the first time Eddie Guerrero's done it to a superstar, and Kennedy took exception. Wow, I, that, I, I, Eddie, Eddie's got Eddie's got to be hurt, Cole. Also in 2005, Midway Games announced that they were going to launch a video game for TNA Wrestling. Did not come out until 2008, and you know the game was eh. It wasn't bad. For TNA, I thought it was fine. You know, I think back to the ECW game. I've talked about it many times. I remember driving an hour and a half to buy it because all my local stores were sold out. And I played it and tried to subconsciously convince myself that it was awesome because I was such a diehard ECW fan. But looking back on it, it's one of the worst wrestling video games I ever played. But still, this week in 05, they announced that video game deal. And wrapping up 05, Shimmer. Women's wrestling promotion was uh, born. It, they had their first two ever events this week at that time. If you're into women's wrestling and you want to go see some nostalgia, pick up Shimmer. They have volume one and volume two, which were taped this week in history. Um, just give you some of the match results. Here, I'll give you uh, volume two. Cindy Rogers over Chrissy Vane, Nikki Rocks over Lexi Fi, Cheerleader Melissa and Tiana Ranger over Ariel and Chantel Taylor. Christy Ritchie over Amber O'Neill, Allison Danger over Rain, Beth Phoenix over Mischief, Sarah Del Rey over Daisy Hayes, Lacey, and Mercedes Martinez, a four-way elimination match. They had some really, really good cards. 
they still are around and they still put on great shows. So if you want to go look at the origins of Shimmer, it started this week in 05. 2006. This week was an odd week to be a WWE fan. It was a couple of things that went down this week. Um, first off, we had the Cyber Sunday pay-per-view. And in that match at Cyber Sunday, Kevin fed a line. K-Fed, remember him? God, I hated that motherfucker. Not because he was with Britney Spears. But I just he's just a guy you just want to punch in the mouth. And he knew it. So maybe him having these couple of appearances at WWE were good. I don't know, man. I just never got into it. But... He cost John Cena in a match at Cyber Sunday, hit him with the belt from behind. It was kind of shitty. And the interesting thing about all of this is this. Following night on Raw, we see uh, on the Titantron, K-Fed, Kevin Federline. And Kevin Federline um, getting booze. Crowd is not liking it. He makes the following challenge to John Cena. Respect for WWE fans. 
that shirt he's wearing. He does. He's got a hell of a way of sewing it. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, may I present to you K-Fed Kevin Federline. My name is Kevin Federline. I know you all enjoyed what I did to John Cena last night at Cyber Sunday. Just like you all enjoyed going to my concerts and listening to my new CD, Playing With Fire. And that's exactly what John Cena did when he decided to mess with me. He played with fire. And Cena, I'm not through with you yet, son. I'm making a challenge. You and me, one-on-one. -on -one. In a match. If you have any guts, you'll face me in one of the many, many cities where Brittany and I live. Miami, Florida. Live New Year's Day, Monday Night Raw. Because Cena, when it comes to rapping, you can't touch me. And when it comes to fighting, you're going to find out you can't see me. And here's the true fact. Here's what's interesting about all this. Even though I have never, I'm not, I'm not a Britney Spears fan. I mean, when she first came out, she, the way she was dressing was hot and all that stuff, but I never liked her music. And I respect those that like it. I just never was a fan of Britney Spears. But I've never bothered to take time to read interviews to see if Kevin Featherline's work in WWE was like the breaking point in their divorce. I don't know what was the deciding factor. It could just be horrible timing, but the day after Kevin Featherline made that challenge on Monday Night Raw to John Cena, Britney Spears had her lawyers go to court and file for divorce. If you actually look at the divorce papers, they filed for divorce the day after KFED cut that promo. Again, probably had it scheduled anyway, but it's just funny to look back on it and wonder, you know, did any of these, may, you know, could have happened? You know, you need to be home with me and, and my family. You need to be home with the family. You need to be home with the family. Show me that you love me. Come home and stay with the family. Don't do not do that wrestling shit. Stay home with the family. If you go to that wrestling shit, it's all. I don't know if that was the case. We have no idea. But the crap from that night on Monday Night Raw didn't end there. Now, this isn't necessarily crap. It isn't. Even though I really felt bad at the time for Roddy Piper. Do you remember in 06 that Ric Flair and Roddy Piper were WWE tag champs? They were for a very short period of time. Roddy Piper was heavy. We know that he had dealt with health issues, could not work out like he could. He had a lot of weight gain, had a really big stomach, forced to wear a T-shirt during his matches. This week in 06, on that same night, we had Ric Flair and Roddy Piper defeating Rated RKO in a no-disqualification tag match to retain the tag titles. Eric Bischoff was the special guest referee. Eric Bischoff was not on the side of Ric Flair and Piper. At some times, would not count the three count. 
And I'll give you some highlights of that night now. You can hear it. But the one thing that I'll always remember from that night is not only the horrendous shit that happened after with Big Dick Johnson and, you know, with just wearing that G-string and dancing in Eric Bischoff's mouth with his peanut. It's just gross. It was just stupid. You look at ringside, people were more into, oh, my God, I got to take a picture of this than, than cheering or finding it funny. It was just really, really stupid. But I will never forget the fan at ringside that had a sign that said, is that Roddy Piper or the Big Show? I mean, it was just, you look at the match, you get depressed. It was cool to see Ric Flair and Piper as tag champs for a short period of time, but still Roddy Piper, even though you understood why the weight gain happened, it just was depressing to see in the ring. And again, the big Dick Johnson shit that happened after all, it just sucked. Anyway, here are highlights from the tag match from that night. Ric Flair and Roddy Piper versus Rated RKO. And it's Edge and Ric Flair starting it out here. This one fall match, World Tag Team titles on the line. We're live from Ohio State University. We thank you for being with us. And Edge and, and Orton have got an, oh, an amazing to leave here as the World Tag Champs. It would be for the 12th time, JR. Edge is no stranger, as you mentioned, Coach. Very, you bet. very astute. The, uh, he's a master of winning World Tag Team titles. And you would have to say that he's had four. Missile drop kick. Edge uh, beating Flair the punch, the cover, the hook of the leg, and Bischoff. Was that a fast count? Pretty quick. With all due respect to the tag team champions he's, he's worked with before, Randy Orton would be the best champion that he would ever tag with. And I'm talking about it. Edge taking a chance. Edge has worked with some great partners. He may be right. Flair knows when to make a tag and does so. Piper's in. Roddy Piper. He's a brawler. He's been brawling on his own since he was 14 years of age. Well, speaking of brawling, what about brawling with DX? I want to talk about Edge and Randy Orton. You're talking about Rowdy Roddy Piper and Ric Flair. Man. I want to talk about DX going down. The victory by Edge and Randy. Oh, yeah, we saw that last night. Oh, look here. The cover. It may be over. What's Bischoff doing? Have a cup of coffee? Well, ago he act like he had a plane to catch to Bischoff, and now he's taking his time. Hey, Roddy better watch it. He doesn't want to lay his hands on the man. There's no disqualification, Coach. He still doesn't want to lay his hands on the man. Well, he's the man for a few more minutes tonight. That's all I got to say. He's still the man. The D-man will be back. And he can still go there, your ass. Time for the, time for the super hole. And Piper just got nailed on the back of the head of a steel chair, which is completely legal. I hate it when that happens. I wish Roddy could have turned around just a second earlier. Piper gets nailed in the head or the face of that steel chair. It's all legal because Eric Bischoff made this a no disqualification match earlier tonight on his power trip. Legal tag, no disqualification, and JR, please just say we are seconds away from brand new World Tag Team Champions. Please, well, say not, it. That's why we're having the match, Coach. Okay. The Garvin stomp by Randy Orton, stopping all the appendages of Roddy Piper, and Piper being just pummeled here and manhandled, physically abused by the third-generation star, and indeed a star, is Randy Orton. Thank you. 
don't know how Orton and Edge can be proud of the way they, they beat DX last night. I mean, they had, it might as well have been a handicap match for Bischoff, steel chairs, and everything else. JR, you've said it time and time again. A win is a win no matter how you get it done. I've heard you. And Eric was impartial. You said so. I heard you have to play it back. They're indicating to Edge he thinks he's number one. And, and Edge goes right back to Roddy Park. That may be a period of Edge. You know, it's really sad to see. And the here's the cover. The cover after. I tell you what, folks, this has been a hell of a night here on Monday Night Raw. Live from Columbus, Ohio, Ohio State University. We've got a new Intercontinental Champion, Eric Bischoff. Orchestrated that. He's the general manager of the night. This is our main event. World Tag Team titles are being contested before our very eyes. Live here. Orton the challenger on, the, on Rowdy Rowdy Parker on a near fall. Last night, that was a fast count, no doubt about it, Coach. Last night at Cyber Sunday, the legendary Roddy Piper on your boat fans was Ric Flair's partner. Piper and Flair became the world tag team champions. And Lightning can strike once, but not 24 hours later. These two can't get it done two nights in a row. Now still a Paul and Bischoff. And let's face it, you want to talk about last night, talk about DX. Talk about the results. DX lost. DX lost. Thank you. So, Thank you. That's all I wanted to hear you say. They lost. They lost with a steel chair being used on them. They lost with a crooked referee. Details. Yeah, small details. Don't let the facts get away of a good story. Thank you. And now Edge, Edge and, and Orton have controlled this match from the outset. I will say that as they are challenging to leave here the World Tag Team Champions. So smart, wearing down your opponent. That's what Edge and Randy Orton do. Even though they are young, they are very, very wise. Bischoff has done some hideous things tonight. And Piper elbowed all the way to the outside. And uh, Bischoff got a pretty quick count there. He wouldn't want to shoot himself a quick count out. As a count out. Get out of the way, JR. We don't want to get in the way of Rowdy Roddy Piper just getting manhandled. Piper in bad trouble. And now Edge has got a steel chair. Edge of the chair. Look at it. Edge going for Piper's head. Instead, Edge's head reached the ring post. How do you do, Post? How do you do, Edge? And now Piper's got a chance to make a tag. It's a big chance. A big if, too. And Edge was swinging for the fences for Piper's head. Come on, Roddy. Come on, Roddy. You can do it. Even being a cheerleader, not going to help these two. Come on, Roddy. You can do it. Get to the corner and make the tag. Edge tags tag, in order.
believe it. The challenger to second away. And the Seven Ember Moon makes a pro wrestling debut. Takes place for PCW's Full Throttle in Arlington, Texas. She wrestles under the name Athena. Teamed up with Mace Ballone, and he lost to Claudia Mike Fox. CNN this week airs Death Grip inside professional wrestling. This obviously was the controversial video that aired shortly after Benoit's death. This was the one that had a lot of footage of the Dynamite Kid. Very, very powerful at the time. You know, yeah, a lot of us remember that in the beginning of their show, at the very beginning of the title, where they freeze-framed and they showed Death Grip on the thing. They showed CM Punk standing at the top of the ring and a gigantic fucking Don Tony sign in the background. I loved it. It was awesome. Everybody's like, oh, cool, Don Tony sign on CNN Death Grip. Now, I'm not a fan of CNN. And they have been accused over the years of doctoring shit. Now, originally, I was going to play highlights of that whole um, episode because it's powerful. If you've never watched it, you really should go out of your way. But something that some of you may not be aware of, of from that episode that they aired, they really edited John Cena's words to make it sound like that, yeah, I did steroids and you'll never find out about it. It was really fucked up. And at the time... Uh, a lot of people were demanding CNN issue an apology. They did not. No, they didn't stop being scumbags when Trump became president. They did a lot of shady shit in the past. Yeah, a lot of other networks have done shady shit as well. But what I'm going to give to you now, two clips. Both involve John Cena. First clip is what aired on this one-hour documentary. I guess you call it documentary. Very controversial. And just listen to how fucked up this sounds on behalf of John Cena. John Cena is a WWE superstar now recovering from an injury in the ring. He doesn't like being asked if he has used steroids. This is a crazy question, and it's something that um, it's tough to answer just because of the way society is now. Mm -hmm. The way people conceive things because performance-enhancing drugs have got the spotlight, and it's a hot thing to talk about. I can't tell you that I haven't, but you'll never be able to prove that I have. Now, if you need to replay it, rewind this a minute, listen to it again. But now I give you the unedited discussion of what John Cena said. Now, I will admit, John Cena talked a little bit too much, a little bit overdrawn. It had to be trimmed down a little bit. 
but if you actually listen to John Cena's comments unedited, his comments are completely different than the way CNN portrayed it when you saw it on TV. A lot of talk about steroid use, yeah. drug use. Have you ever used steroids? Absolutely not. And this is a... This Even is, back in bodybuilding days, this is a, football a, days... This is a crazy question, and it's something that... Um, it's tough to answer just because of the way society is now. Mm -hmm. The way people conceive things because performance-enhancing drugs have got the spotlight, and it's a hot thing to talk about. Anytime you see any athlete in any athletic venture, it could be the PGA Tour, achieve physical greatness, something that is beyond the norm, even for a top-tier athlete. If top-tier athletes are rushing for 1,000 yards and somebody comes out and starts running people over and rushes for 2,000, it's not athletic achievement anymore, and that's something that really gets me. It's he or she is on performance-enhancing drugs. And it's only because that certain athletes have gotten themselves into certain situations where automatically the finger is pointed at somebody. Oh, they're on performance-enhancing drugs. My answer to that question, have you ever used steroids, is the only thing I can say. I can't tell you that I haven't, but you'll never be able to prove that I have. Because each one of you, each one of you out there has an opinion on how I carry myself. And I can take a million tests. I've been tested for drugs since I've been 17 years old. I can take a million tests. I can pass every one of them. As soon as I pass it, there's some other guy on the other end going, oh, there's masking agents, there's this, there's that. I know the arguments because I've been in the situation. This is a subject that's very, very near and dear to me, only because since I was a very small child, I've worked my ass off to get to where I'm at. And it sucks to be able to have to deal with people saying that I rely on a crutch. You know, I wake up every day and I work myself to the bone because I love what I do. I got the best gig in the world. I love it. And it, it, it kills me to have to, to sit here and do this with one arm. Like, I want to be back out there. You hear stories about uh, guys coming home from the war and they're in the infirmary and all they want to do is get back in the field. I want to get back in the field. You know, it, it's killing me. But to have to, to deal with the popularity of a, of a substance that enhances performance, is, it's, it's tough to take. I, uh, I take great pride in the fact that I, I have a, a God-given gift of above-average natural strength, and I show it off whenever I can, because to me, that's fun, that's entertaining, it's what I love to do. 2009, the Evolve Wrestling promotion is created. They're still going strong today. Also in 2009 this week, Ric Flair gets married for the fourth time. This time, it's with Jacqueline Beams. They stood married for about two and a half years, and if I recall, isn't she the one that had the mugshot with Rick that they were intoxicated and she beat him up or something. And I think Charlotte called 911. I think that's the scenario. I could be wrong. I didn't pull it, but I think so. Also this week we had the uh, unfortunate, you know, unplanned retirement of James Gibson, Jamie Noble. He uh, had a 14-year career, but because of multiple injuries and he had severely injured his back with Sheamus only about a week earlier, he retired from in-ring competition. Also, this week in 09, got two audio clips to share with you. First, stay in the WWE theme for a minute. Know that TV show, Dinner Impossible? Chef Robert Irvine, who's married to Gail Kim. I have always said I am a big fan of Robert Irvine. Always was, followed his shows. 
Dinner Impossible was a little different because it's mostly him under pressure. I like the ones when he used to go to shitty restaurants all across the United States and confront people for being lazy and fucking up their business. And they always seem to turn it around. Then you would do a Google search to see how they're doing today. And most of those restaurants closed down anyway. But still, this week in 09, you may not have even known it took place. There was a WWE-themed episode of Dinner Impossible. Now, I'm not going to share the 30-minute episode with you. I'll play the first three, four minutes just so you could hear what the opening of the show is about. Then you might want to go check it out. Next on Dinner Impossible. Come on, Cupcake. Robert takes on the WWE. We want you to complete a superstar meal for 300 VIPs in nine hours. His superstar helpers... Chef Miz, baby! ...can't get their heads out of the wrestling ring. Can you crack them eggs? Absolutely! And into the kitchen. Whoa, 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 whoa! Don't burn my chicken! Will Robert be able to wrestle them into submission? Enough of the games. Let's go. And deliver a meal that's a real knockout. There's only one boss here, though. That's me. I'm in Los Angeles. There's a wrestling ring in front of me. It looks like I'm in for another rough-and-tumble mission. Okay, I'm ready for anything. Bring it on. I'm not worried. I can handle anything. There's a very large man walking toward me, and he doesn't look happy. Thank you, sir. Holy mackerel. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Stephanie McMahon with World Wrestling Entertainment, and this is The Big Show. The world's largest athlete standing at 7 feet, 485 pounds. He looks like he eats people. <laughs> he so, might. so what am I here to do? Well, tonight is SummerSlam. It's the WWE's biggest event of the summer, which means tonight we want you to complete a superstar meal for 300 VIPs in nine hours. Nine hours. And counting. What do you mean, a superstar meal? Well, see, all of the superstars in the WWE have what we call signature moves. So, would you please demonstrate one? You know what? That actually won't be necessary. I don't know what's scarier, the big show, or creating a menu based on different wrestling moves. What are those moves? We'll be finding out later today. Do we have a kitchen? Allow me to uh, show you to your kitchen and introduce you to those who will be helping you. Do you want me to follow? Yeah, come on, Cupcake. Let me introduce you to your help for today. This is Sonny, the executive chef here at the Conga Room at LA Live. This is Jim Ross, Hall of Famer for WWE, and yep. The Miz. How are you? WWE superstar. This is uh, David and George. Well, good luck. Are you not saying help us? Not me. You know you got nine hours, right? Yeah, I got it. Nine hours. We're here, right? Look, thank you. All right, now I've had the living daylight scared out of me. Here's the mission. Nine hours, 300 VIPs. The menu is based on WWE superstar wrestling moves. And I presume that's what these are. Some of the wrestling moves on this list will easily translate into dishes. The fish hook, something to do with fish. You want to do a salt-crusted fish, a whole fish? Okay. The spear. It's almost like a tackle, if you will. Like a guy comes, 
He hits him with a shoulder. Definitely poor shoulder. Or something skewered. Chop block. Chop block is where you run and you drive your shoulder into someone's knee. Something chopped. Chop salad. Floor hold. That's where they put their hand and they squeeze your temple like this. We'll use something with a claw. All right, flapjack. That seems to me a pancake. Pancake. I would take your leg, bring you up, and you'd basically pancake out under the ground. What do you like in a pancake dessert, sweet wise? Chocolate. Apple butter. We'll use apple cognac in chocolate sauce. Vinegary is Triple H's finishing maneuver. He grabs your head between his legs. Grab it like that, and then boom. In or out of wrestling, pedigree means only one thing, the best. Take a lobster tail, slice it into a medallion, and then throw truffle oil on the top of it. Can we get short ribs? Short ribs for sure. That says pedigree. Some of the names are a little harder to figure out. Tell me about RKO. RKO is uh, Randy Orton's finisher. It's kind of a neck breaker, I would kind of say. Takes your uh, head and throws it right into a... Uh, there you go, just like that. Give me something neck breaker. Well, little neck clams. Necks, little neck, the saffron broth. Cloverleaf. It's a uh, submission hold. Okay. And it's a submission hold leg. on the leg. Cloverleaf, to me, says Irish. Kerrygold butter. Something poached in butter. Scallops! Rich with Guinness butter. Asian mist. Asian mist is a move that evil wrestlers use to spit multicolored liquid in a man's eyes. I'm going with a drink, and I want something like we drop in ice cubes, and then the steam comes off. Got some liquid nitrogen in there. Oh, yes! All right, what about the fog splash? If you were laying on the ground, the guy was on the top rope, he basically jumps off the top rope and lands on you. Like a frog. We can get frog legs. I don't like to end on 13. Let's throw one more in there. The skull crushing finale. Yeah. That's my finisher. Oh, it's I like basically that. a full uh, Nelson. So I'd take you like that. And then I'd front sweep you right to your face. Can we do something with like uh, ice cream, like a bonbon or something that, so you crush and has something inside? It needs to ooze. Raspberry puree. Got it. Like that. All right, so just for you, JR. JR may not have a signature move. But as a WWE Hall of Fame announcer, I want to make him whatever he wants. Chicken barbecue sauce, onions grilled on them. JR's dish rounds out our menu. That's VVVIP. Great menu, but we need to get going. On the TNA side, little controversy. You know, they just had signed Hulk Hogan. Some people on the roster were not happy about it. Thought that it was going to poison Impact Wrestling, TNA at the time. And Dixie Carter held a meeting with roster, with the entire roster, creative meeting. They were in an empty arena, and she talks for about two or three minutes. They videotaped it. Now, from what I understand, Vince Russo Creative did not want this aired on TV, but Dixie Carter insisted that she wanted TNA fans to see this. And it was controversial at the time, even though if you listen to it, it's really not that big of a deal of what she said. But still, you know, Dixie Carter showing off her muscle as being the owner of TNA. She decided to air at the beginning of Impact this week, the following. Since I was named president six years ago, I've had a lot of people telling me how to run a wrestling company. And while I appreciate their contributions, it's time for a change. We've had a lot of great things going on in this company. We've made a lot of changes in the last few months that I'm sure you've seen, and we made a bigger change even last week. I can assure you that we'll have more changes coming in the coming weeks and the coming months as well. Nobody likes drastic change. Nobody likes big moves, I understand that. And it affects different people different ways. 
And while I respect that those of you out there might have differing opinions of the decisions that I'm making, I expect you to support me 100%. When you question things in this company, you're questioning me. And I cannot allow that to happen. Business is about choices. I've made the choice to put my finances, my reputation, my passion, my love behind each and every one of you and this company. And it's time for you to do the same thing. You have a choice to make. You can choose to support me. You can choose to support the direction TNA is going. Or you can choose not to. But you'll need to find another place to work. It's time for us to swing for the fences. It really is. No great success comes without risk. And I'm great with that. I hope you are too. Now's our time. I look out on the faces that have made this company and you've made me very proud. But this is a test. So I'm asking all of you to step it up in every way possible. And let's do this thing together because now's our time and you gotta believe it. If you don't believe it, you're hurting the person sitting next to you. You're hurting me, you're hurting our fans. But if you believe it, let's do this thing together and let's show what everybody we're all about. I went back and I checked the ratings from you know the time they signed Hogan till the end of the year thinking that, you know, maybe it will attract a little bit more interest to the product. And sure, Hogan didn't debut for TNA until early the following year, but he was still behind the scenes. There was still a lot of news and buzz surrounding TNA. Prior to that meeting, impact rating was a 1.1. That was their highest rating until Hogan made his debut in January of 2010. So think about that. The week in 09, in November, early November, that they aired that edition of Impact, the week before was a 1.1. After that meeting, they never scored that high of a rating again until Hogan actually showed up on TV. It's interesting if you actually do a little research on it. It really is. So there you go. Um, 2010, TNA has their turning point pay-per-view in Orlando, Florida. Robbie E over Jay Lethal to uh, win the X Division title. Mickey James for Tara to no contest. The Motor City Machine Guns over Team 3D uh, to retain the tag titles. At the time, it was uh, advertised as Team 3D's final match before their retirement. Obviously, they didn't retire. Instead, they split up. We had aces and 0.8s a couple of years later. We know what happened. RVD over Tommy Dreamer in a no-DQ match. Fortune, consisting of AJ Styles, Doug Williams, James Storm, Kazarian, and Robert Roode over EV2000. Brian Kendrick, Raven, Rhino, um, Sabu, and Stevie Richards. What sucked about this match was if anybody lost in the match... Uh, for Team EV 2.0, they would be fired. We all found out on the internet before this event went down that Sabu was being let go by TNA. So who the fuck gets the, you know, the loss in that match? Sabu. 
So kind of like ruined the match for a lot of us. Abyss over D'Angelo in the narrow. A lumberjack match. Jeff Jarrett over Samoa Joe. Jeff Hardy over Matt Morgan uh, to retain the world heavyweight title. And speaking of Jeff Hardy, the following uh, impact. They debuted a custom world title belt for Jeff Hardy. I originally had it in a synopsis. It's so goddamn ugly. I know it's creative and it's artistic and everything, but it, it that is not a fucking title belt. Just go Google TNA's Jeff Hardy title belt. Make sure you look at the purple one because I think they re, you know, furbished it a little while later. It was it, embarrassing. It was disgusting. Also, this week was the finale of Kevin Nash and TNA. Just basically, to put it short, you had Fortune dominating TNA. They came up with an idea. They were thinking about putting together the main event mafia, recreate it to uh, basically feud with the Immortal faction. So you got members of Immortal in the ring, and they're talking to Samoa Joe and Sting, and they want Samoa Joe and Sting to join Fortune. And pretty much Kevin Nash cut a promo and said, no, and that's it. He walked out, and he legitimately was done with TNA. In case you forgot the promo, here you go. You know, it's almost a perfect fit for me. I mean, my whole career, it's really been about money. I mean, I really haven't cared about anybody else. Hell, I didn't care if somebody starved. I really didn't care if somebody lost a roof over the, over the top of them. I mean, I took as much as I could. But a funny thing happened on the way to getting here as I got older, I got wiser. You know, the Bible says that gray hair is a sign of wisdom. With wisdom came compassion. Those guys in the back that I would have took every dollar from in the past, they're my friends. They're my family, so this time, I'm gonna pass on the money. I want nothing to do with you guys. If you guys wanna run this company in the ground, you can do it without me. Wrapping up 2010, interesting appearance. You know, we all knew Mick Foley had crazy number of concussions and, you know, health issues, but he really opened up on this interview with Michael Landsberg on Off the Record. Now, the whole segment went almost 30 minutes. I'm not going to go into that long. I'll give you the first eight, seven, eight minutes of it, but it's very interesting to hear Mick Foley, what he had to say as far as his health more than anything. So here you go. Highlights from 2010's TSN Off the Record with Michael Landsberg interviewing Mick Foley. I'm sitting with Mick Foley, author of Countdown to Lockdown, the latest of his books. Uh, I'm a big fan of your writing. I couldn't name all the titles. I don't think you could even do it now. You've written so many books. I could if you have the time. Okay, well, you know what? <laughs> 
or the interest. And I'm sure I have more time than I have interest okay. in hearing your titles because there's so much more we could do with you. You left WWE last time under not the best circumstances. Yeah. Would you go back under the right circumstances? Uh, you know, I went from from saying when asked about, you know, potential Hall of Fame nomination that, ah, you know, if it was important to my kids, I guess maybe I'd think about it. And then something magical happened. Uh, WWE went out of their way to uh, mention my book on the air, on their show, which they had not done for anybody, which was seen as being an impossibility. And I went from having reservations to thinking I would do it in a second. So, yeah, I, I would, uh, especially the Hall of Fame. No one li leaves Vince permanently, do they? I mean, he, you know, even a guy like Bret Hart, who, who, yeah. who you thought in a million years would never go back. Um, the truth is that, that you're with TNA now. Yes. And I, I've heard you talking about it. TNA is number two to WWE. Right. And will always be, probably be number two because of just the size of the company and their ambitions and all of that beyond right. that. But... It seems like no matter who you are, no matter how you feel Vince has crapped on you, you'll go back for the right deal. First of all, I love uh, wrestling for TNA. Uh, it's, it's been such a great source for so many people, whether they be younger wrestlers trying to get a break or guys like me uh, who were able to live a pretty good normal lifestyle. Whilst, uh, with that being said, I, I mentioned in the book that nobody wants to get too far away from Vince's good graces because whether they realize it or not, they're all looking for that welcome back hug. And Vince is a, he's a tremendous hugger. Uh, but is it fair to say, though, that no matter how far you got away from Vince, no matter how much he detested you for something you did, if you could make him money, he would give you the hug? Under most circumstances, yeah. I, I thought you were going to say talk about me making the final decision i looked at the decision to join tna as like the cutting of the umbilical cord like i'd From always wwe i'd always felt connected uh to vince and to the company and in a weird way uh uh linda's candidacy for the senate has made me feel connected again because when they attacked her and attacked the company they were really attacking what i what i did for a living when i say they i mean you know po politicians and and uh political parties and it and it kind of reminded me of all the things that I liked about being there. I'd always felt like I had 90% positive feelings about WWE, 10% negative, even when I was there. And well before, you know, there was some kind of truce made. Uh, but that's to, the nature of being an employee yeah. anyway, right? Yes. It doesn't matter what company you work sure. for. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's always going to be 10% where right. you go, you know, I love the way they do that business, uh, right? But I, Vince, I'm guessing it was more than 10%. Uh, maybe for a short time during my announcing experiences, but this book was written well before I had made any peace with WWE, yet it's far less negative towards WWE than my last book, which was a WWE book. So I dedicated that book to Vince because he had given me the freedom to write the book I wanted to without worrying about what I could and could not is say. There, is there anyone that wouldn't go back to Vince, do you think? Uh, there, there are certain people he won't take back. Uh, uh, I.E.? Uh, it's not for me to. I'd, ra I'd rather not. I'd rather not say if that's all right. Um, and I. How long have you worked with Rick Flair for? <laughs> it wouldn't be Rick. Rick actually called me on the 26th. I talked about this on the air because I I was fortunate enough to have shared two really great moments with Rick just recently. We did an, an in-ring promo, as we call them in wrestling, where literally I knew one thing that Rick was going to say about me. He knew one thing I was going to say about him, and that was it. Like, it was just that creating 
and it was that magic that to me is has been missing from wrestling for years. You can't always create a magical moment, but uh, by you know by eliminating the scripts, you at least increase the potential of having one. And then uh, a few weeks later, Rick and I followed it up with a match that you know was probably one of my all-time favorites. Nice. But I don't think Rick is out of good graces there. I mean, he did what he had to do. Um, he wanted to remain a vital part of uh, wrestling. And that is one of the opportunities that TNA provides. Just because somebody says, you know, kid, you know, you need to sit on the bench for a while. In baseball, you have other teams that can get you some swings. Uh, in wrestling, we're fortunate that uh, TNA is providing people that opportunity. Here comes the trash can. Well, that's definitely not the first time that Mitch been hit having a trash can. And I think not the last, because there's another one. Biggest thing in the National Football League right now, the National Hockey League, in terms of safety, are concussions. Yes. And it seems like there's an evolution of what we know about concussions, but more than how to treat it is really the recognition of what is a concussion. You believe over the course of your career you've suffered from how many? Dozens, dozens to up to to a hundred. Do you feel brain damaged? I feel some. Honestly, I feel like something hasn't been right for a long time. Like, uh, like I'm just submerged underwater. Like things are just not clear. And uh, you know, in talking to Bret Hart, who suffered long-term concussion damage, that's pretty consistent. But yeah, honestly, I have not felt sharp in a long time. And isn't one of the problems with not feeling sharp for a long time is you forget what sharp is. Exactly. Yeah. But you, don't, yeah. you probably don't remember what it was like to feel with a healthy brain. I believe you're correct. Do you think that your sport, um, your, what you do, your profession, has changed? It changed for the better as far as treating us? Uh, yeah, I, I think the attitudes are changing. Um, I've talked quite a bit with Chris Nowinski, who I know Chris, retired yeah. for, you know, from wrestling after concussion suffered in football and wrestling, and he's done a lot of studying, and, and he t tells me the attitudes have changed dramatically, especially when it comes to youth sports and high school sports, right. where it's no longer cool to stay in the game when you're hurt. Right, but let's talk about, let's talk about wrestling, yes. first of all. And by the way, Chris Nowinski, one of the things they do is posthumously, they examine people's brains, yes. right? And, yeah. and they've had brains donated by hockey players, Keith Primo, I believe Bob Probert did as well, uh, and from some wrestlers uh, and I, in your book. You're one of those guys. Right? I was one of those guys who was, going to, who was going to donate a portion. I described it inaccurately as they were going to drill into my brain. Actually, Chris said, what we're going to do is take slices of your brain. And in talking to Chris the last time I was in Boston, he said, you know, part of the brain is good. The whole thing's better. So, yeah, I, I have the comfort of knowing that uh, when I die, you know, some guy's going to come with a saw and... Uh, <laughs> take out my entire brain it would uh, be fitting given your career if he did that slightly before you died because you are the ultimate hardcore guy right that would be hardcore yeah uh, yeah here's what i want to know uh physically the concussions that you picked up many of them were just from you doing routine things yes. you um, for instance with the undertaker you would go charging at the undertaker yeah and you would have a chair and he would put his foot up, right? Well, with any number of opponents. Okay. I mean, that was a go-to move. Right. A lot of things were... A lot of my go-to moves involved... My moves made the... Um, made suspending disbelief easy for fans because I was usually getting tagged. So, so here, here's my question, and this, I think, will give us an answer to whether wrestling has changed. 
Would Vince allow you to do that exact same thing in WWE today? No. If he had any idea uh, that I was seeing stars, uh, I think at the time he would have said not to do it. I'll, I will say this on Vince's behalf. I'll, I'll say two things. People can uh, um, criticize Vince all they want. I'll probably join in on many of the criticisms. But I know that after Hell in a Cell in 1998, Vince came up, and I'll give you the impression, too, and he said, you have no idea how much I appreciate what you just did, but I never want to see anything like that again. And he talked about putting a governor on me, the same apparatus that will not allow a car to go faster than it should go. And that's one occasion. On the second one in 2000, uh, when I was at my absolute peak as far as popularity, when I told Vince that I was having some trouble uh, you know, mobility-wise, he's making you know you really need to lose some weight. And then when I said, Vince, I- I'm driving 20 minutes past my house, like I don't even know where I live sometimes. And he said, You've just had your last match. As it turned out, Stone Cold Steve Austin had a serious neck injury, and I hung on for a few more months. But I think the idea that Vince was willing to give up, you know, not give up, willing to allow one of his top wrestlers to to leave on his own terms without maximizing profit potential shows you that underneath you know the uh you know the bellicose billionaire there's you know there's a pretty good heart 2011 sarah logan makes a pro wrestling debut takes place for iwa east coast vote or die event in west virginia wrestles under the name crazy mary dobson i know a lot of you don't remember that and she lost to mickey knuckles also in 2011, WWE unveiled their logo for the upcoming WWE Network, which is pretty much still the same logo that they have today. TNA announced that they had signed a deal with Ohio Valley Wrestling to become their developmental territory. Only lasted about two years, and almost to the day, their relationship was terminated. In fact, I think we covered their termination last week. And for just comedic purposes, since we're talking about TNA, CM Punk who was performing for WWE at the time. We've heard a lot of incidents with him berating fans at WWE house shows. Sometimes he goes a little bit overboard with some of the words that he uses, but this one made the rounds at the time, which is pretty funny. CM Punk basically getting in the face of a fan sitting ringside and basically just calls him a TNA fan. Nothing really controversial out of it. No homophobic words were used, but still it's funny you go back and you hear it. WWE on their website has a very interesting poll for fans because we were around election day, you know, Barack Obama being um, put back in office. They wanted fans to vote on who would be in the Mount Rushmore for the WWE. And you had to choose from the following Bruno Sammartino, Andre the Giant, Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Undertaker, Bret Hart, Steve Austin, The Rock, John Cena, Triple H and CM Punk. Mount Rushmore, of all time, from that list only, 
So I don't really say to me, oh, we need to From that list only. And at that time in 2012, the fans voted for the Mount Rushmore of WWE to be the following. Hulk Hogan, Steve Austin, Undertaker, John Cena. 2012 as well. Linda McMahon loses her bid for the U.S. Senate. Chris Murphy defeats her 55% to 43%. This made a lot of mainstream news because Linda McMahon spent $51 million of her own money trying to win. You see the amount of money that's now spent these days on some elections. Not as impressive anymore, but she used her own money. So, you know, I'm sure some of that was a tax write-off. 2014... New Japan Pro Wrestling's Power Struggle event. This was the night where AJ Styles not only defeated Yoshitatsu, but Yoshitatsu suffered a pretty serious neck injury. You know, you've seen it many times. You know, unless you really understand not only how AJ Styles executes the Styles Clash, but how you're supposed to take it. You know, you start understanding the move, you realize that Yoshitatsu tucked his head in which is a big no-no, and as a result, he severely injured his neck. Um, Now, you just picture yourself taking that move and just pretend you're, you're not a wrestler. Your natural instinct is to always tuck your head in because you feel like if you're tucking your head out and you land the wrong way, you could be beheaded, right? So I kind of understand why someone may, you know, screw up with that, but as a pro wrestler, you're not supposed to screw up. And you're supposed to know, and you're supposed to be sure. Otherwise, you don't take that move. Early on, I know a lot of people blamed AJ Styles. I have given blame to AJ Styles in the past, you know, for some of the Styles clashes that went a little awry. But, you know, looking back on it and doing a little bit more knowledge and research, I now actually uh, put a lot less blame. And in many cases, no blame on AJ Styles. And finally, 2017, Pete Dunne makes his WWE Raw debut, defeating Enzo Amore. And the same week, AJ Styles defeats Jinder Mahal on SmackDown to win the WWE Championship. Notable birthdays this week, those celebrating birthdays who are no longer with us. Happy birthday to Jose Azari, Tino Herrera, Matt Capitelli, Peter Goodman, and Tony Rumble. Ken Patera turned 76, Cowboy Bob Orton Jr. 68, Asanino Negro 66, Hiroshi Shimada 62, King Kong Bundy and Tony Schiavone 61, Mascara Zagrada and Nick Patrick 59, Dump Matsumoto 58, Arashi 57, Billy Gunn turns 55, El Limon turns 54, Bill DeMott and Scorpio Jr. 52, Disco Inferno, Van Hammer and Damian Steele 51. Mitsuya Nagai, 50. Takako Inoue, 49. Chris Jericho, 48. Mamoru Okamoto, 46. Mike Hughes, 44. Rico Fukuyama, 43. Josh Barnett and Dave Prezak turned 41. Johnny Cashmere, Marshall Scott, Bullfight Sora, Lina Yada, Oriental number 2 and Carnage turned 40. Joey Ryan, Slick Wagner Brown and Reggie Gallagher turned 39. Maximo and Katerina Lay turned 38. Ryback and Muhammad Hassan turned 37. Ted DiBiase Jr., Jacob Novak, Eli Drake, and Christy Ritchie turned 36. Dave Christ, Crystal Marshall, and Chrissy Rivera turned 35. Keith Lee, Drew Shepard turned 34. 
Hiroyo Matsumoto turns 33. Nick Aldis, 32. Okada, 31. Marshall Von Erich, 27. Peyton Royce, 26. Pete Dunne, 25. And Leo Rush, happy birthday, turns 24. Notable debuts this week in history. Pedro Morales debuted in 1958. Genichiro Tenru in 76, The Messiah in 96. Becky Lynch debuted in 2002, Ember Moon in 2007, Marty Bell in 09, Garrett Bischoff in 10, and Sarah Logan in 2011. And finally, notable deaths this week, those who passed away this week in wrestling history. Taro Miyake died at age 89. Don Fargo passed away at 85. Jose Lothario recently passed away at 83. Joe Higuchi died at 81. Killer Carl Cox and the great John L. died at age 80. Choo Choo Lin and John Kowalski passed away at 79. Joe Scarpello at 76. Chuck Molnar at 72. Don Taylor at 71. Sky Lolo at 70. Dick the Bruiser, 62. Eddie Steinblock at 61. Al Romero, 54. Heather Savage died at age 36. And Crash Holly passed away at the age of 32. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I will return next week with episode 46 of This Week in Wrestling History. Follow me on Twitter, at DonTonyD. The website, DonTony.com. Email me, DonTony at DonTony.com. Facebook.com slash DTKC show. And if you like what we do and you want to support the shows, get some additional content and help us keep these free for everyone, keep the lights on, keep the bills paid, consider our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Don Tony. For five bucks, you get hundreds upon hundreds of Patreon exclusive shows. Every other week, Mish of Wrestling Soup and I do a show called Breakfast Soup. Kevin Castle does a solo show, Castle Chronicles. We have paper predictions contest, retro episodes of the Mass Maniac show, lost episodes of the Minority Report, vintage hotline reports that I did 20 plus years ago. So much going on over there. Five bucks gets it all. Patreon.com slash Don Tony. Everyone, I hope you enjoyed it. Feedback, feedback, feedback as always. And once again, I'll be back next week with episode 46. Take care, everyone. Be well. Ciao. Tune out with Nevia by Moen, the spa shower that offers double the coverage using about half the water, making it look, sound, and feel totally different. Learn more at moen.com slash Nebbia. Tune out with Nevia by Moen, the spa shower that offers double the coverage using about half the water, making it look, sound, and feel totally different. Learn more at moen.com slash Nebbia.